0: hello and welcome to from rewatch with love a james bond cinematic rewatch podcast my name is graham stark joining me is matt wiggins hello And today we are looking at 1973's Live and Let Die, starring Roger Moore as James Bond. His first role of seven, Roger Moore still holds the record for most films as Bond and definitely put his own mark
1: on the era. Absolutely. It's interesting. I I imagine we'll get into it over the next several movies as we as you know more comes to fill out the characterization of his bond and whatnot but the one thing that really struck me watching the movie earlier this week was that it's very apparent why he was such a like good choice for the role they had you know they had wanted to bring him in to the franchise prior to now and had had not been able to make it work when when Sean Connery left the first time Roger Moore was on the list of people that they wanted to to replace him. Seeing him in this, you know, the first shot of him in this movie, you're like, oh, yeah, he looks it. What a great pick. Over the course of the film, he sort of develops his his portrayal of the character a bit. And it's it's a little different from Connery. But it feels very like well executed. Yeah, his movies definitely
0: were more overall lighthearted in tone, which I don't think is a bad thing. For many years, I maintained that Roger Moore was my favorite James Bond. I don't think I'm in a position to actually claim that I have a favorite James Bond anymore at this point. It's like Mystery Science Theater. I love Joel and Mike equal and Jonah equally. They all bring different things to the roles. They're
1: all good James Bond
0: they're all good, James Bond. Oh, God. We're going to have to start a Twitter account called We Rate Bonds. <laughs>
1: <laughs> With only seven tweets.
0: Yeah. But Moore's characterization definitely receives some derision for, you know, not being as hard bitten and edgy and being more sort of on the debonair end of things. And I. Obviously, I disagree with that because I think these are just different things to like. And as you say, we have a lot to talk about today and we're going to get into Moore's portrayal of James Bond more over the course of this and the next six episodes. But I think actually Roger Moore, who received Sean Connery's seal of approval to pick the role up, Summarized it himself best when he said that Connery's bond was a killer, and Moore's bond was a lover my My interpretation of that is that Moore's bond has a lot more empathy than connery's bond. he's prepared to do violent things, but he doesn't relish it he doesn't enjoy he has a license to kill he doesn't want to have to use it. Whereas you got this impression that Connery's Bond was enjoying himself a little more in that role than Moore's Bond does.
1: Yeah, I think that's totally fair. It's interesting that he gets the reputation of being less edgy, too, because I actually like maybe it'll develop a little more over the, the coming films. I certainly remember his films being sillier right like lighter hearted and you know verging towards again almost like a parody of the the old the connery bond films in places but watching this movie I, i commented to meg at one point when he like Oh, we'll get to it. But I I, like I laughed. I'm like, oh, he's such an asshole. (laughs) He's quippy and witty. And and you're right. Like he he is empathetic and doesn't appear to be like relishing the the violence as much. But he is he pulls no punches with his wit. Like he's a jerk in some places in this film.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, I think because Moore could quip and deliver biting one liners so effortlessly, because he's really good at it. You, you maybe forget that Connery had an equal number of like real obvious one-liner moments that would pull you out of the moment just as much as anything that Moore would say. Moore, for his part, had already cut his teeth on playing a spy character in the long-running British TV series The Saint which ran from 1962 to 1969. And he portrayed Simon Templar. And in fact, he had a sort of trademark eyebrow raise that he would do on The Saint. And they were like, you can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) You, you can't do the simon templar eyebrow if you're going to be james bond he became more bond than templar as this went on he definitely got some eyebrow work in there but you know but he has a history of playing spies already
1: as the the sort of iconography the cultural iconography sort of subsumed his personality into bond and he became sort of synonymous with bond over the next like 25 years or whatever the the distance that was achieved between him and the saint probably did him some favors there.
0: But his journey into James Bond began here in 1973 with Live and Let Die, directed once again by Guy Hamilton, fresh off Diamonds Are Forever, and with a screenplay by Tom Mankiewicz, who I think I might have rather briskly glossed over when we talked about Diamonds Are Forever, that Richard Maybaum did... A version of the screenplay of diamonds are forever this was the whole like goldfingers twin brother thing and they didn't like it and they wanted an american to come in and write for bond so that it had an edgier feeling and so they brought tom mankowitz in to do a treatment based on maybom's script and this one is mankowitz from the get-go and they asked him which fleming novel he would like to take a crack at adapting next and he said live and let die now there's a lot going on in this movie that I think we should talk about before we get into the actual play-by-play of the movie. Mm -hmm. I, I hope that everyone listening is familiar with the term problematic fave. For many years, I considered this my favorite James Bond movie. And as time passed and I reflected on it, I realized to the greater degree what problems this movie has and then when going back to watch it now for this podcast i realized not only to a greater degree what those problems were and the issues with them but also why i liked this movie so much originally Hmm. because despite of the things we're about to discuss it is well shot well edited extremely well paced and everyone in it is doing terrifically in their roles And it's just fun. It is a fun movie to watch. And I still really, really like it. That said, there are many things to talk about. I'd like to start with Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) I know that might seem odd, but stick with me. We use Wikipedia fairly often to reference things. It's a very useful tool, but it always bears reminding that Wikipedia should not be a primary source if you're using it for any sort of research or something. (laughs) That's what the footnotes are for. It's also really apparent when you look at certain articles on Wikipedia that there are holes in the knowledge base of Wikipedia editors. This is the movie that made me look into the demographics of Wikipedia editors. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know that they're like 96% men? That does not surprise me even a little bit. No, it sure doesn't surprise me either. Mostly in their early to mid-twenties or past retirement age. Also the least surprising news of the day. Yeah, and they're also predominantly white. I'm talking about English Wikipedia here. Right. Obviously, other languages will have different demographic breakdowns. And I bring this up because on the entry for Live and Let Die, and it shows up referenced this way in other places as well, Live and Let Die gets put forward, not definitively, but in a questioning manner, as sort of, is Live and Let Die a Black Exploitation movie? Spoilers, no, it absolutely isn't, but let's talk about it. <laughs> the reason I mention Wikipedia is because the Wikipedia entry for Black Exploitation movies talks about, you know, what is a Black Exploitation movie, and it's all deeply superficial. Right. It talks about visual tropes and characters that come up often in black exploitation movies. To an extent, it talks about themes of black exploitation movies of black power and fighting against an inherently unjust and racist system. But it doesn't talk about what makes a black exploitation movie have the word exploitation as part of its name. <laughs> Which drives me absolutely mad that this integral part of what makes a black exploitation movie is not explained in the Wikipedia article for it. So Crash Course, it's the early 1970s and movies like Shaft and Superfly and Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song are filmed with black directors and black creative teams and are very, very successful with black audiences much to the surprise of white movie executives who then see that this is a market that they can exploit and if you look at the wikipedia listing for movies that are considered black exploitation those ones are on it those are not black exploitation movies <laughs> they were made by black people for black people but then as you move further down the list and you get into the mid-70s, every other movie is directed by a white man because then the movie companies started hiring white people they knew to direct black people's stories. That's exploitation cinema. Now, Live and Let Die only enters into the conversation if you consider black exploitation as purely superficial. The movie has cool suits and big cars and afros and Harlem and that's it. The main character is white, this is not a story of black power, this is not remotely a black exploitation movie. It's a movie set in New York in the early 1970s. That's the only connection. Now, obviously, a big criticism of the movie is that all the bad guys are black. There's no way around that. There's one black guy who's on Bond's side, who works for the CIA. That doesn't make it all right. And it would be easy to dismiss that and sort of look back on it and be like, well, it's not necessarily outside the realm of possibility for a black crime organization to only employ other black people. and That just happens to be who Bond is fighting now. He's fought Russians. He's fought Spectre, which is surprisingly diverse, I suppose. But why does every criminal organization that James Bond fights have to be diverse? Why can't one entirely be black? Which is true. But in an interview with Tom Mankiewicz, he says that he wanted to adapt Live and Let Die specifically because he thought it would be provocative at the time. Because at the time, In the early 1970s, the original Black Panthers organization was at the absolute peak of their popularity and membership, and they were being vilified by the media. And to intentionally wish to adapt the movie with the all black criminal organization operating through the underground of New York and New Orleans and a fictional island in the Caribbean means that this was intentional. Mm -hmm. The idea of all the black people are evil was on purpose, which is super awful. (laughs) Yeah. On the flip side, Mankiewicz wanted Bond's main female co-star to be black in contrast to the novel. He wanted Solitaire to be black and Rosie Carver to be white. And the producers said, we can't let you do that because then we won't be able to release this movie in all of our usual markets because this was still the 1970s. And the idea of an interracial relationship was still very taboo in some places, to the extent that when this movie was released in South Africa, all the romantic scenes between Bond and Rosie Carver had to be cut because of apartheid. So there's a lot there. Right. And I beg of you, listener, some amount of patience and understanding that neither of us are experts in this and that it's not the point of this podcast. And it's challenging to go really deep on this kind of thing. But- As we've said before in earlier episodes and in YouTube comments and whatever, this movie may be an artifact of its time, but this podcast is being recorded in 2020 and it would be irresponsible of us to just pretend like none of that context was there.
1: And loads of context there is. I don't know. Maybe I have a couple of questions for you. Yeah. We come around to the idea that like making this movie with an all black criminal organization is intentional. In the last movie, we talked about how Diamonds Are Forever was built to appeal to an American audience and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. las vegas is not exotic enough location for most american audiences and this one again like the very next movie they're back in the u.s for a not insignificant portion of the film then this the sort of intentionality around casting and and an all-black organization as the like the criminal force in this do you think that that is trying to think of the right word here do, do you think that that is an attempt to capitalize on the the popularity of like black exploitation film and the black created films is it an attempt to sort of ingratiate and sell this movie to american audiences in a way that that the previous ones didn't note i'm not using this as an excuse i'm, I'm actually thinking this probably makes it worse because then it's just a craven attempt to exploit this genre that's being given rise in an attempt to draw additional audience reception
0: so I didn't make that clear earlier, and yes, I do think that's the case, and I completely agree with you, in that this is in no way a black exploitation movie, but I do think that it is attempting to capitalize on the success of black exploitation movies with that visual veneer but with none of the thematic elements that are common to black exploitation movies there is no speaking truth to power in this movie bond and solitaire are the good white people this is not a black exploitation story but you're totally right this is something that would be true even of the next movie because this is a james bond movie with black exploitation <laughs> elements because black exploitation movies were popular the Man with the Golden Gun is a James Bond movie with kung fu elements because Bruce Lee movies were popular. And that's definitely something that they would continue to do, but it's most notable here. So yeah, I completely agree with you. And I should have mentioned that more, more clearly earlier. I was just really upset <laughs> reading about black exploitation <laughs> on Wikipedia and going, that's not what makes it black exploitation, you fools. <laughs> There's a really important key piece of this puzzle that you're missing but you're yeah you're right
1: okay cool maybe that was my only question i don't have a good segue from there <laughs> <laughs> that's okay
0: in fact many of the actors who play kananga the villain kananga slash mr big spoilers the people who play his henchmen many of them were also in black exploitation movies of the era so there's definitely some some amount of connection there but i guess the rest of it i've made more notes for this episode than like most of the previous ones <laughs> just because i was like there's a lot of context here to, to try and go over but anyway let's maybe get into it and we'll sure. carry on from there we have a brand new gun barrel sequence with roger moore of course we open for our pre-title sequence one of the very few pre-title sequences that does not feature bond in any way but boy does it set the movie up yeah and i love that so we start At the United Nations in New York, a delegate from Hungary is giving a speech to the assembled delegation. And as it goes around the table, you see that everyone has these earpieces in where they're listening to their translator live translating the speech. As we pan across to the United Kingdom representative and then cut up to a recording booth where his translator is translating the speech. And then we pan over to the patch cables that are running all the audio and a hand comes in and pulls out the united nations cord plugs their own cord in (laughs) and activates like a plunger it looks like a tnt plunger (laughs) but they like they plug a red cord in do this plunger cuts back to the delegate there's this high pitched like noise and the delegate shrieks in pain and falls over dead (laughs) i'm not entirely sure how that works but we're all just going to accept that that works. You got killed by sound waves. Yeah. There's a brief shot before we cut away of the delegation from San Monique. And we will find out later that this is their prime minister, Dr. Kananga, and his advisor, Solitaire. More on them and their actors and all that later. We then cut, hard cut, to New Orleans, New Orleans, Louisiana, as a man stands outside across the street from a restaurant called Filet of Soul. S-O-U-L. Very cute. And he's sort of keeping an eye on the restaurant, having a smoke. And around the corner comes a jazz funeral, which I learned is a term that it's very closely tied to New Orleans and Louisiana in particular. And the term jazz funeral has only in the past 20 years come into acceptance as a term for, I mean, people people have been calling them jazz funerals for a long time, but the people who participated in them didn't like the term because they're like, we play a lot more music than jazz. They, they preferred funeral with music. And only recently have they sort of been like, all right, fine. You're all going to call them jazz funerals. We'll just accept that. So... A jazz funeral comes around the corner. Now, in my research of this as well, typically a jazz funeral procession plays down-tempo dirges until the deceased is entombed and then kicks up into very, very lively dance music as the procession continues which is relevant because what happens is the funeral is meandering its way down the street. There's the grieving widow who's crying and the agent, he's an agent, we find out. The man watching the restaurant is sort of looking on and a man steps up beside him to watch along with him. And he turns to the man and goes, so whose, whose funeral is this? And the man goes, yours, and stabs him. And the man, <laughs> the man dies immediately. And the pallbearers with the coffin somberly walk over, lower the coffin over top of his body and then pick it back up again. And the body's just inside the coffin now, which is a great visual.
1: I want to know how that coffin works. I assume for the purposes of filming, there was just like a handle or whatever, like a a way for him to anchor himself inside the coffin.
0: Yeah, the stuntman had to like grab a handle and like brace really hard against the sides of the thing.
1: Yeah, Uh, but I want to know narratively. In the world of James Bond, what is the mechanism by which that works? Because there's not a lot of room in a coffin for mechanism. It's fine. Carry on.
0: Trapdoors? I don't know. Anyway, once he's in the coffin, then everything kicks up. Everyone's happy. The widow is smiling. Everyone's having a great time and they dance on down the street. I just like that the because I never knew that context before that the celebration music happened after the deceased was entombed. Like, actually, once the coffin was lowered and buried. And so that slight additional context that they're like, we did the thing that we were that we were going to do. Everyone party. Mm -hmm. I just kind of like that. And then we cut from New Orleans, another hard cut to San Monique, an island in the Caribbean. Brief, brief language quirk. San, Spanish for saint. Right. Like Santa Barbara or San Jose in California. Monique is a French name. So the, 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 they don't mesh. <laughs> San, <laughs> San San Monique would not be a name that would exist in real life because it would be colonized by two different countries. Yeah. But this is sort of a pastiche of a couple different places. Haiti being probably the biggest and San Domingue also. But Haiti being the biggest and I'll explain a little more later. But we see a bunch of people. I mean, Okay. They're practicing voodoo. Voodoo. Oh, God. Okay. Voodoo comes (laughs) up a lot in this movie. And both Louisiana voodoo, V-O-O-D-O-O, and Haitian voodoo, V-O-D-O-U, which are related but distinct and are both religions that developed out of displaced African populations due to slavery louisiana voodoo is the one that started being really commercialized and marketed in sort of the 1930s Mm -hmm. you know like voodoo dolls you know you put the pin in the voodoo doll and then you know you cast a hex on someone right you'll be shocked to learn that that's not a real thing i am positively recoiling in shock (laughs) (laughs) and so i did way more reading on this that i i just don't it doesn't Need to come up as far as this movie. the the Tldr is some amount of this, the representation of voodoo in the movie is taken from real life. A lot of how the people on San Monique are dressed is certainly inspired by real life voodoo does often use animal sacrifice a lot of the mythos around baron samedi is accurate but a lot of it is also just invented because fleming and mankowitz made up whatever they needed to human sacrifice was never a thing obviously guy wearing the goat head i couldn't find any sort of reference to solitaire who reads tarot she gets described as having the power of the obeah And Obia is a different yet further thing that's a spiritual practice, less of a religious practice, and Obia has a lot less hard-to-find, like there's no sort of hardly hard-to-find pantheon like there is with voodoo. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of mishmash going on here, and we're not going to sort of break down well, that's correct, but that's wrong, but that's right, but that's wrong. Just know that you can't walk away from this going, oh, I totally get voodoo. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I think you would, viewer at home, but, you know, I just want you to know that we're at least thinking about it.
1: Right. This is a totally fictionalized representation of voodoo, drawing inspiration from two actual practices of voodoo that are related, but distinct, but which each in turn bear little resemblance to what is depicted in the film.
0: That is a very succinct way of putting it, yes. So a man wearing a goat for a hat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a great hat. I'm sorry, I love hats. It's a great hat. This dude is just really iconic in the movie. He shows up a couple of times. It's a great hat. It's a great hat. He comes out holding a snake, which looks
0: fake, but it's a real snake. And there's a man tied to a pole. It's a white man. So you know that he's out of place and he looks terrified. The actor was terrified. The man with the goat for a hat brandishes the snake closer and closer until it sort of unconvincingly bites him on the neck and the man passes out, presumably dead.
1: Okay, I feel like you're underselling how unconvincingly it bites him on the neck. just
0: the guy just sort of boops him with it he just sort of goes like yeah (laughs) like the snake's (laughs) mouth doesn't even open no
1: and there's no bite marks on his neck he literally like boops the snoot against his neck and then the guy just like falls over dead it's hilarious it is very silly Mm -hmm. do we know if this snake is actually a venomous snake i have no idea i
0: don't know what kind of snake that is quick to the internet movie reptile database (laughs) i guarantee you it exists (laughs) <laughs> oh god! I gotta search for this now. Maybe it's like the animal database.
1: Oh uh, well, I found the reptile database. Yeah. All right, snakes. Let's see if I can. Let's go visually identify a snake. Actually, the snake in "Live and Let Die." It is an
0: emerald tree boa. Are they? Boa. Boa is not typically venomous because generally
1: they're constrictors. Yep. Also, the website I found, it is not the internet movie snake database. It is snakes on film.
0: (laughs) Ah, yes. The the
1: famous Duran Duran song, snakes on film. So anyhow, it is a, uh, the snake appears to be an emerald tree boa. Uh, it could alternately be a green tree python. Does that make it have a higher chance of being venomous? No, no, okay. no. Pythons are also constrictors. It, it does have long, sharp, pointy teeth, according to this website, but it is decidedly non-venomous.
0: Well, luckily, this actor was so scared he fainted, so. Wait, really? Yeah, I don't know if this is the take of him fainting, but apparently this actor was so scared of snakes he fainted, yes.
1: Amazing. I mean, that's one way to get a performance out of someone. I mean, you know who else was scared of snakes? Like most
0: of the cast.
1: (laughs) That's fair. I still feel like you could find one stuntman who'd be willing to get smooched by a boa. Right? Just little little nose boop. Boop in the neck. Yeah. So
0: opening pre-title, we've seen three people, we don't know who they are, die in different parts of the world. We have no idea what the connection is. And we cut to the opening titles. Solid start. Now the opening titles
1: oh man so this song rules
0: live and let die rocks so hard this is such (laughs) a good song this is written by paul and linda mccartney and performed by wings much to the consternation of harry saltzman who wanted well so there's the apocryphal story of Guy Hamilton, the director, receiving the song and saying to Paul McCartney, great demo when he was recording the real one, because he didn't wasn't into rock music, I guess. Saltzman was like, the song is great. I want a woman to sing it, preferably a black woman. McCartney said, if you want my song, Wings is performing it. <laughs> so Wings performed it there is a scene in the movie with a black woman performing the song and saltzman apparently liked that version better all things being equal
1: i prefer the wings version i think this song rules the song rules i'm with you i prefer the wings version i mean it's not a fair comparison no right the version in the song is sung by a woman on stage basically unaccompanied in a different style and not in a well like produced way no so the comparison is completely apples to oranges but the song as it exists in the opening titles is a banger i have started to sort of put forth my what is it the unifying theory of bond themes oh yeah matt wiggins unifying theory of bond themes which is that bond themes can be categorized into three categories Ooh. the three categories being bangers uh-huh. belters uh uh-huh and ballads. I love it. And and like there are qualities within there, right? Like there there are bad bangers, for instance, mm. and bad ballads and and bad belters, but those are the three categories that that Bond themes belong in. And this one is our first like genuine banger. I think everything that's come before this. Oh no, this will be our second banger because I would also put OHMSS in the banger category. But it's like it's up tempo and and like electronic. They don't all have to be electronic, but it it was to an extent that really like up tempo like getting you jazzed to dive into the movie that is sort of what defines the banger category for me Mm -hmm. the belters of course are like goldfinger thunderball ballads you only live twice that kind of thing yeah so this is my unifying theory of bond themes the three b's I, I think this one sets a very, very high bar for the bangers going forward. I
0: completely agree with everything you said, and I love your categorizations. It's really, <laughs> that's excellent. Yeah, this song is super, super good. The opening titles themselves... They're pretty good. I like the flaming skull motif. It's kind of hard to go wrong with a flaming skull. It is hard to go wrong with a
1: flaming skull. although there's one element of it that bothers me. Is it the
0: one silhouette of the woman who's just sort of like kind of like half hunched waving her hands around aimlessly?
1: No. OK, sorry. It was to do with the flaming skull specifically ah. as a thing that bothers me. As the song starts, we have an image of a woman standing facing the camera that sort of like pans in goes right in on her head before it flips to the skull but it doesn't center the skull okay this was bugging the hell out of me in alignment with her face i know oh my god
0: (laughs) maybe bender just can't center things i don't know i'm glad this was bothering you as well
1: no it super bugs me i'm like it zooms her in so that the bottom of her chin is clipped off the screen Mm -hmm. because it wants to come in on her eyes and then it centers the skull in frame and then it continues to like zoom in on her and it zooms in on the, the skull, but they're offset from one another. And it's like, if you're going to do that motif, just it's an x-ray. She has flesh and then she is bone. She has flesh and then she is bone. But the way they've, they've aligned everything, that doesn't work. And it, it just it, it annoys me like crazy. Yeah, myself as well. Let me tell you. <laughs> But I like the flames. I like the skull. I even like the weird, the fiberglass, like, filament thing they're doing.
0: Oh, yeah. There's a bit where it just cuts to a fiber optic lamp just sort of wiggling back and forth.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sure. Why not? It's 1973. (laughs) There's a bunch of imagery used in this opening that I like. Yeah. But it's not stitched together very well. So A for effort. Well, B for effort. (laughs) A for the ideas, maybe like a C for execution. I've never given them letter grades before now. I'm just introducing this. That's not going to continue. This is just how I feel about this particular one.
0: It sounds like a, the song from The Music Man. It's like you get an A and a C and the average is a B and that stands for Binder. <laughs> After the opening titles, we open on a shot of a sleeping woman pan back And she is resting her head on James Bond in bed at James Bond's house. And his doorbell goes off. Or the door, someone's knocking
1: at his door. This is one of the few times we see Bond's place. It's a nice place. Yeah. One of the things I like about this movie and about the way they introduce Roger Moore here, the polar opposite of what they have done the last two times out. In the titles, it's Roger Moore as or James Bond 007 in Live and Let Die. There is no ceremony whatsoever about Roger Moore. Roger Moore now being in the role. Yes. He's just, this is Bond. Of course, this is Bond. This has always been Bond. What's wrong with you?
0: Very smart. Very, very smart. And I also like that they didn't tease the reveal and play it up. He's not looking cool in a suit. He's shirtless. He's like stumbling through his dark apartment, fumbling with a dressing gown, trying to get to the door. (laughs) (laughs) which I don't know, I kind of like. So he cracks the door open and there's a very glum looking M standing outside. It's like 5am, I think. Bond looks very concerned to see M here. We will find out that it's because the girl that Bond was spending the night with is an Italian secret agent who MI6's Italian counterpart can't get a hold of. (laughs) <laughs> because she's she's taken a, an unapproved time off to go and cavort with Bond. So Bond's very like, uh, sort of peering around and there's some visual bits of her like sneaking through the apartment. But M explains Bond has to get, get going immediately because in the past 24 hours, three of their agents have been killed. One in New York, one in New Orleans and one in San Monique. And he mentions Baines in San Monique and Bond says, ah, oh, Baines, I rather like Baines. That's a, what a shame. You know, very like... Roger Moore really lands for me. I like Sean Connery a lot. I like all the actors that play James Bond, but there's something about Moore's delivery that really lands for me.
1: This whole establishing scene of Moore as Bond he is so good m tries to walk into the bedroom where where the woman is and bond is like quickly let's go into the kitchen and have coffee they go into the kitchen and he starts to make a coffee and he's got like this old-fashioned espresso machine with a, a milk frother and a press for the for the beans and it, like he makes the coffee and hands it to m and m is just like is that all it does
0: i love that read <laughs> i love the disdain from m just is that it okay
1: the the clash of like the man of extremely refined tastes and his boss yeah
0: As they're in the kitchen, the agent Miss Caruso sneaks out of the bedroom and hides in the hall closet. Just as Money Penny is entering, and she sort of looks at Money Penny and with a pleading look on her face, makes like a shh expression. And Money Penny's just like, "What the?" He doesn't really know what to make <laughs> of it. Bond and M come out of the kitchen, and Money Penny goes, "Oh yes, here you go. Q finished working on your watch." And there's another great bit with M going, "I'm sure the British taxpayer would love to know that you're using company funds for it to." get your watch repaired. In future, I would be happy to recommend a watchmaker just up the road who could do it for considerably less money. And then Bond flips a switch on the watch and the spoon on M's saucer goes flying across the room and (laughs) attaches itself to the watch. And M just is like... Good God.
1: He, he, he gets it immediately and, and manages to scale back his response very quickly because he is shocked for a moment and then, and then sort of like rolls back into being totally unimpressed again.
0: Yeah, asking for his spoon back.
1: Yeah, can I have my spoon?
0: So then they make to leave. M looks around for his coat, which, of course, is now in the closet where Miss Caruso is hiding and Money Penny doing a solid for Bond is like, oh, I'll get it and runs over and grabs the coat. Or this is where M explains, you know, good work on the Italian affair although they're missing one of their agents do you have any idea where she might be and bond's like nope not not a clue and so then they leave and money penny goes okay goodbye or should i say ciao (laughs) bond using the magnet watch opens the door of the closet and then invites miss caruso to come back out of the closet and then uses the magnet watch to unzip her, her dress and that's the scene
1: it's such a great little visual gag Mm-hmm. I love the I love the zipper. It's not at all <laughs> how magnets work, but it's great. Something
0: I love about this watch specifically. So, uh, okay, one thing Bond explains that it's a magnet so powerful that it could even deflect the path of a bullet at long range. Fun fact: they tested that on MythBusters, and no. <laughs> Not at that size anyway. The second thing is this magnet watch doesn't work. Uh, By which I mean it functions within the movie. It it does the thing it needs to do, but it does not actually save Bond's ass, which I actually really like. They do all the setup and then there's a point where Bond's like, aha, I'll use my gadget and it's not good enough. And I kind of like that. Like the magnet doesn't, the watch itself does with a different thing that it can do, but the magnet doesn't do it and he has to figure another way out of the situation.
1: This scene, basically stands in for a Q scene in this movie, though. Yes, because it does establish that it is a gadget watch, which then gives the audience permission to be like, oh, of course, can do the other things it can do.
0: Yes, which this is one of the few Bond movies that does not have Q. I missed him. I missed him, too. I'm glad he comes back in the next one. So then there's this really interesting scene that's very different for a Bond movie where we see an airplane taking off and we cut to a shot of we'll find out later the character of Solitaire but we only see her hands doing a tarot reading. She's flipping over the cards and her interpretations are, you know, a man comes, he comes over water, he intends violence, he brings death, you know, and this is intercut with shots of the airplane taking Bond to New York. It's kind of funny that in universe the card backs have have that really awesome looking 007 motif on them i love it it's so good really elegant cardback design it's
1: a great little detail it's like you only notice it if you're really paying close attention mm-hmm. i love the idea that everybody is just walking around with 007 branded merch but with no idea who 007 is yeah <laughs> I like that. Yeah. The MI6 marketing team has been both really great at their jobs and really bad at their jobs. (laughs) So
0: tarot reading, a completely different origin than voodoo and certainly not in the realm of the obia as attributed to Solitaire's powers. And I mean, depending on your personal beliefs and interpretation of tarot, either What Solitaire is doing is completely inaccurate or it can be whatever she wants it to be because she's the one doing the reading. You know, it's the movie has a lot more leeway with tarot than it does any of the voodoo stuff. Bond lands in New York, sees that a car has been sent to pick him up. This has always gone
1: well for Bond in the past. Every time he hops in the car, they depart the airport. Quickly thereafter, Bond receives a phone call on the phone built into the car's center console. And on the other end of the line is none other than our good friend, Felix Leiter.
0: So this is Felix Leiter as played by David Hedison, who, until the Daniel Craig movies, would be the only actor to play the role twice. It was this movie and one of the Timothy Dalton movies, License to Kill.
1: He's the same Felix in License to Kill? It's the same Felix! What?! Is (laughs) it... isn't that wild do we see another felix between now and license to kill i can't remember (laughs) that's wild it's the same felix also
0: this guy definitely my favorite felix lighter i love oh he's so good i love david Hedison. i just love his accent and his no-nonsense demeanor i love this guy yeah
1: he's super good
0: I got to see. I'll have to look it up later if there's because this is 1973 and License to Kill is 1989.
1: Yeah, like they're not in close proximity to one another. They're like 16 years apart.
0: Uh, yes, actually, he's played by a different actor in the first Timothy Dalton movie in The Living Daylights two years before David Hedison would come back in License to Kill.
1: That is something else. <laughs> and just knowing what happens in License to Kill, like what a weird choice. I
0: know it's so bizarre. <laughs> But yeah, Jeffrey Wright has played lighter in Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, and apparently is also in No Time to Die. So that'll be interesting.
1: Mm -hmm. So conversation ensues. Bond basically lets him know that he's on his way. Felix hangs up, says, I'll see you in about a half an hour. And we cut back to the car where now a white, I want to say Cadillac, but I don't know my car logos that well.
0: Oh, you're going to love this.
1: Ah, yes. The Internet Movie Car Database.
0: This is actually a custom car. The body... Of a Cadillac Eldorado. Oh, I called it. On the chassis of a Chevrolet Corvette. Oh, yeah. Made by Dunham Coach Motor
1: Car Company. He called it the Corverado. What a name. Yeah. I like that it has the like Cadillac emblems as its door handles. The guy who made this
0: ended up making seven Corverados over his lifetime. And they they all look amazing.
1: Huh. Well, it is an, like a very, I, I say iconic too much. It is a very eye-catching car. It
0: really is, yeah.
1: Anyhow, the car pulls up next to Bond, being driven by a black man we have not yet met. Immediately, something is afoot. The man driving the Corverado begins playing with an instrument panel, which causes the passenger side mirror to flip open, revealing a red-pointed dart-like thing. The display panel on the dashboard of his car lights up with a targeting reticle, and he sort maneuvers the car until it aligns with the head of the driver of Bond's car and the dart fires, killing the driver silently. The gentleman in the Cor- the Corverado speeds <laughs> off. Bond starts to wonder if something is wrong. The, ca- the car starts to swerve a little bit. The now dead driver's foot drops onto the gas pedal, causing the car to accelerate rapidly. As the car now is speeding up and swerving through traffic, Bond gets a little concerned about what's going on. It, you know The car crashes into a few other cars bond realizes the driver is dead leaps over the rear passenger seat because he's being like chauffeured around to grab the wheel and manages to hold the car on the road for a surprisingly long time but with no way to pull the driver's foot off the gas or get it onto the brake pedal he basically just has to ditch the car the car ultimately crashes and comes to rest after leaping the stairs of what appears to be a nearby courthouse brief intercut of
0: felix lighter and the rest of the cia surveillance team watching dr kananga because the whole reason that bond is going to new york is that one of their agents got killed in san monique and the agent that got killed in new york was keeping tabs on the prime minister of san monique so they figure there's probably a connection and so then there's a bit of felix getting a phone call from james being like oh hey james what's going on you what because he's crashed the car Felix gets a call out identifying the car that took them off the road. Then we see, as they are performing surveillance, they have Kananga's room bugged, and we see Kananga and his entourage enter his office. There's this great moment where... Kananga starts talking. He's very disappointed about the results of that day's international convention, essentially, and instructs someone to take a letter. Nobody moves. He says, take a letter, but none of his entourage do anything. And then he starts dictating and saying, you know, it is very disappointing to me that he flips a switch on a tape deck and it starts playing him dictating this letter. And then they all start changing clothes. So... They know the room is bugged. He at some point took time to record <laughs> this this massive tape of him dictating a letter to obfuscate them being in the room because the intent is they're going to leave the room and they want the surveillance team to think that they're still inside there.
1: I, I love the amount of forethought that had to go into this plan. Yeah. Having to take like an hour to record an entire speech so that you can transition to it flawlessly upon entering the room. Mm-hmm. I love it.
0: So while that goes on, Felix's team has correctly identified where that car is registered, which is a tourist-focused voodoo shop in New York and sends Bond over there. He tells Bond, don't worry, you got plenty of time because he's listening to Kananga, he thinks, dictating this letter. And I love this line because the letter that Kananga is reciting is very pro-San Monique. It's a very nationalist letter. And the line from Leiter is, you got plenty of time, James? Kananga's knitting a flag in there (laughs) i I just i love that as a way of describing like oh he's going off so bond arrives at the oh cult voodoo shop i love the name
1: (laughs) it speaks to my heart oh cult
0: it's it's just so obviously a like because i mentioned the 1930s i mean it it started in the 30s and then dipped a bit and then saw this resurgence of the commercialization of louisiana voodoo and this is clearly a like touristy shop full of kitschy stuff (laughs) and so it's the occult voodoo shop you know it's like get a skull
1: you know little signs on the bookshelves of skulls being like these are sold for rituals yes (laughs) Bond walks into this shop, the the henchman that was previously driving the car walks in behind him and Bond has sort of made his move to the back of the shop where he's not as obviously visible. Upon seeing the henchman walk in, he walks back up to the cash register, grabbing a plush snake that looks suspiciously like the snake we saw earlier. Wow, I'm literally realizing that now. It's the same coloring. You're right. It is the same coloring. It is a plush tree boa, green tree boa, I think we said then he says could you gift wrap it for me so she reaches across the table and grabs it and then he grabs it back from her orients it from a horizontal orientation to a vertical orientation and says lengthwise if you please (laughs) which is
0: just (laughs) what a complete goof of
1: a line this is where i started to sort of like formalize my like i he's such a dick This isn't where I, I had the, like, full realization. That's still yet to come. But this this is where it starts to cut in. You're like, oh, right. He's very dry and very witty and very, like, eye on the mission. But to the people around him who don't know what's going on, he's like an enormous ass. Yeah. She takes it away. He then exits the shop through a curtain on the other side of the room where the henchman had made his previous escape and he sort of ends up in a back hallway that, you know, an industrial sort of hallway that's all concrete and brick. He skulks around. Upon sort of happening into the parking garage, he spots the white car.
0: We cut back to Kananga's office as a man opens a secret door behind a bookcase or an armoire. His posse have now changed clothes into less formal suits shall we say more sort of 1970s stylish suits the kind you might see in a black exploitation movie and we don't see kananga but we do see the rest of them but we don't see what kananga is wearing bond is poking around the car as that posse appears in the elevator in the parking garage that he's hiding in he hides they get into a different car and leave through a car elevator and he rushes back up to street level and tries to follow them so he flags down a cab and then we cut to inside the Voodoo shop, and the woman at the desk is on the phone saying, He's tailing. And then we see a man in the car across the street watching Bond leave in the taxi saying, Yep, I see him. And I'm going to tell you this now. Those two people are not communicating.
1: No, they are not talking to each other at all. I
0: mentioned this a couple episodes ago. I love this scene because there are two different groups of people tailing Bond, and it's edited together to look like it's one group, and you don't find out until later. One of them is a CIA agent named strutter and you are meant to think that he is working with the bad guys
1: the cab that bond is in tails the car which it turns out is headed north towards harlem bond gets some some words of caution from the taxi driver i love
0: this taxi driver
1: the taxi driver is really good he's
0: got such a great personality and these enormous sideburns they are really big sideburns they are and he says you're going into harlem and he's like look if you get keep on that car and there's an extra 20 bucks in it for you and he says for 20 bucks i'll take you to a clue clucks clan cookout (laughs) which (laughs) is like holy crap
1: yeah along the way several other people radio in that they've got an eye on him. yeah there's like a guy running a shoe shine booth radios ahead. There's a a guy in another car radios ahead. And then when Bond gets out of the cab, they arrive at a fillet of soul restaurant and Bond gets out of the cab and the cabbie is like, sure, hope you make friends easy. Bond like heads in. And then the cabbie proceeds to pull up his radio and radio head like, yeah, he's going on in.
0: Yeah, I love that even the cabbie is in on it. It's like everyone is in on it. So Bond goes into the restaurant and the place just it doesn't fall silent, but everyone turns and looks at him because this is in the middle of harlem in the 1970s he's the only white face in certainly in this restaurant probably in the neighborhood everyone just sort of is like what huh okay he asks for a bourbon because now bond does not drink vodka martinis now bond drinks a neat bourbon no one seems to remember the era where bond only drank neat bourbon but that was apparently all of roger moore's era (laughs) and so he says i'll have it neat and the guy says what's that no ice oh that's extra (laughs) He's definitely being, you know, given a bit of the runaround here. Yeah. I was curious because I was like, 20 bucks to the cab driver. I didn't do the adjustment for inflation, but I was like, the cab driver reacted very strongly to $20. The menu on the wall behind Bond says that a hamburger is 65 cents.
1: Ah, This is a fair chunk of money, 20 bucks. Yeah. I wonder what the cab ride would have cost. Yeah.
0: So the guy comes over with his bourbon and Bond flashes another 20 bucks and says he also wants some information. Just as the waiter grabs the $20 bill, the wall and booth that bond is sitting at spins around like a secret door in a haunted mansion (laughs) and the waiter walks away with bond's 20 bucks drinking his bourbon
1: (laughs) it's such a great move He like grabs the 20 bucks tucks it in his pocket and walks away and has a sip of the drink bond is like oh geez He like tries to stand up and discovers that he's already too late and he's he's been flipped around. We flip around and on the inside, we're inside what is evidently some sort of uh, a villainous lair. We can't be sure it looks the part, you know, stainless steel trimming on elevator doors, modern furniture. So if if anything, I feel confident in saying that this is meant to look like a villainous lair, given the, the visual design that we've seen in the past.
0: And a guy brandishing a gun at Bond and two other guys who have their guns conspicuously visible. And Bond realizes, OK, I'm not going to try and <laughs> fight this then. So he just stays sitting at the booth table. The guy says, just sit tight for a few minutes. Mr. Big wants to talk to you. And so Bond sort of wanders around and pokes his head around the corner and sees Solitaire. And she's appeared in a couple scenes right now, but we haven't seen her talk, although she's reading tarot cards. So we realize that she's the person who was reading the tarot cards. Solitaire, played by Jane Seymour, certainly one of the most successful post-Bond careers of people who weren't already a name. She went on to do lots of film and television acting, probably most well known for gosh, 159 episodes of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman.
1: Wow. Also, I knew that and I had forgotten that. And yes, you're right. She sure was. Yeah. So this is Jane Seymour
0: at 22, 21 or 22, I think it is. And she had like maybe two or three credits prior to this movie. So the main titles say and introducing Jane Seymour.
1: Well, she's great
0: in this movie. She is. Yeah. Moore, by the way, for his part, doesn't look it, but is actually 45. Really? He was older when when he started playing james bond the connery was when he finished hmm. which is part of why moore looks so so much older as the movies go on by the time we get to view to a kill it's like yeah how are you still doing this
1: yeah he, he definitely shows his age in the later films a lot more than even connery did and i commented on the fact that connery is you know was showing his his age by the time we got to diamonds are forever mm-hmm. but you wouldn't know it no. at this point
0: and so he's just effortlessly quipping with solitaire and out from the room at the end of the hall comes one of mr big's henchmen a large Large man with a claw hand, a robotic, like prosthetic arm and claw hand by the name of Teehee. He comes out and just sort of smiles at Bond and then turns to Solitaire and goes, Is he armed? And then she does a tarot reading and goes, yes and he's like oh okay cool and then reaches inside bond's coat with his claw pulls the gun out bends the barrel sideways with his claw
1: which is like the classiest way to disarm someone is to render their weapon obsolete and then give it back to them
0: t is played by julius harris who also had a long movie career sort of showing up here and there over the years but i mentioned it at the beginning everyone in this movie is great and like t is great baron samedy who. I don't know actually what the character's name is when he's not being Baron (laughs) Samadie. Yeah, he's he is only ever referred to as Baron Samdi in the film. But he's great. Whisper, who's the man who was driving the Corvorado earlier, is great. All the henchmen are distinct and interesting, and I I really appreciate that.
1: Yes, we also have like a multitude of... The Bond thing is always that your henchman has uh, some sort of gimmick. And in this movie, we have three. Yeah. A plentiful bounty of gimmicky henchmen because Teehee is enormous, you know, evidently quite strong with the the mechanical arm. Baron Sam D will learn is the man who cannot die. And is also like eight feet tall. And Whisper has like this very raspy voice. He's like a very large man, but with a very, very whispery voice. Each of them have a like a strong character hook there that you can you can sort of dig into and follow along with through the film.
0: Whisper is also incredibly strong. There's a point later in the movie where he just straight up deadlifts Roger Moore and carries him out of the room. Right. (laughs) He just (laughs) picks him up and carries him out and it's like holy crap that guy's really strong jeffrey holder by the way who plays baron Samity, is not eight feet tall he is six foot five still very very tall we'll talk more about him later so bond just sort of goes over to the garbage bin and Drops his now useless gun into the garbage bin while everyone else sort of like looks on and laughs and then goes back to chatting with Solitaire about tarot and you know, sort of like, oh, high priestess, this must be you. Which one of these is me? And she says, well, I don't know, pick a card. And he flips one over and it's the fool. And he's like, ah, I see. Interesting. They're interrupted by Mr. Big coming out of the room at the end of the hall as he's in the middle of some sort of meeting of criminal masterminds and he's in the middle of yelling at them and being like, look, if you don't take care of the situation out there in Los Angeles, then I'm going to come out there. take care of them myself and he comes out mr big who's in in this amazing like velvet overcoat he talks to solitaire and bond tries to introduce himself and he tries to do the like bond james bond and mr big cuts him off says names is for tombstones baby turns around and says to his other people (laughs) take this honky outside and waste him which
1: implies that he should want his name i guess (laughs) that's a good point yeah (laughs) if names are for tombstones then
0: yeah we're we're gonna need to know that in a couple minutes aren't we right Uh, fair enough but i just love that mr big is like i don't care i do not care who you are you're look at what you did you're gonna die like you (laughs) tracked me uptown you're obviously you got your nose too far into my business yo kill this guy
1: yeah this scene is like everything that goes on in this scene is great we get character development we get introductions to characters it's like a scene that needs to happen but it is like peak scene that needs to happen because when bond walked into this place or was brought in here through the trap door he was told mr big wants to talk to you Mm. then is held around where he gets to interact with all of the characters that are in the room only for mr big to come out be like who are you i don't care who you are you guys kill him yeah that's a good point for all intents and purposes mr big could have just been like standing order if i get tailed here by someone who looks like they're a secret agent from the uk (laughs) Just take them out back and give them the old yellow treatment. You don't need my sign off. That's
0: true. After Mr. Big leaves, Bond picks up the top card of the tarot deck and it's the lovers. And he sort of looks at Solitaire and is like, us, maybe? Hmm? And then two guys come up and grab him. And he just, as he's being dragged away to be killed, he's saying to Solitaire, <laughs> now you wait right there. This won't take a moment. I'll be back before you know it. Just really casually. <laughs> and she looks dumbfounded because as far as she's concerned the tarot is legit and this is the only bond movie that deals with the supernatural as far as we are led to believe the tarot in the world of this movie is legit as far as at least solitaire reading it and so the top Mm -hmm. card being the lovers does give an indication that that will come to pass and so she's like wait what how he's being taken away to be killed how what the huh and that becomes relevant because she sort of helps Bond later on the sly Mm -hmm. now preview this is my Bond moment of the movie this is one of my favorite lines from any Roger Moore Bond movie it's a shot of a dirty back alley in Harlem and Bond gets hurled bodily out of a basement door flung (laughs) into the brick wall on the opposite side of the alley and he turns around to the people that threw him and just says thank you (laughs) And his delivery is so good. Just like, yes, yes, this is what I love about Roger Moore's James Bond. It's just like, fling, thank you, right (laughs) into the wall. So he gets led at gunpoint through this amazing back alley of like a abandoned buildings and he sees a metal pipe sticking out and he makes to maybe he'll grab it and the guy sort of is like get your hands up come on they keep walking and he leaps up and grabs a fire escape hits the guy that has the gun and then uses the fire escape to sort of swing himself around and kick the other guy unconscious before the other guy can grab his gun he reaches down to get the gun that was dropped before another man one of the people who was tailing him him yells drop it because the other man has his gun out bond puts his hands up and the other man walks up to him and flings into bond's hand his id because he is cia agent strutter and he makes the observation white face in harlem great disguise bond real real smart he takes bond back to his car and they start talking and then you hear felix lighter's voice because he's on the radio in the car and strutter indicates the dashboard and there's a microphone in the cigarette lighter and bond with a <laughs> double whammy of puns says oh a genuine felix lighter illuminating <laughs>
1: Oh, the line is so good. Yeah. I, I laughed pretty good at that one. I had forgotten that line, but it is
0: it is so good. So clear that there's some sort of connection to Kananga in San Monique and that Kananga has skipped town heading back to San Monique. They put Bond on the next flight and we then cut hard cut to baron samedi laughing where it's like what, what? Who, who's this It's a man with like half his face painted and he's wearing a top hat and there's fire and then we pull back and we see that there's like people sitting at dinner tables and there's a guy on a microphone what, what's going on here and i love this way of getting this information across to the audience but there's this mc in front of the band going let's baron samedi folks or saturday if you don't speak french he's the voodoo god of the underworld but for our purposes he's 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 just a performer and a little musical number we've cooked up for you. Oh, wonderful people. (laughs) And it's like, (laughs) oh, God, right. Resorts.
1: I don't know. It looks like a pretty, pretty bumping musical festival they've spun up. Yeah,
0: Everything he said there, by the way, is accurate. Baron Samadhi is the leader of the voodoo gods that make up the gods of the dead. So he's the master of the dead. He is also the god of resurrection, which comes up thematically later. And he's typically depicted with a top hat and tails meant to represent a body that has been dressed for burial. And he's played here by Jeffrey Holder, who was primarily a dancer and choreographer, but also did acting as well. Just had an amazing voice. Most recently, you might know him as the narrator of Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the one with Johnny Depp. That's yet another Roald
1: doll connection. Yeah.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. He also almost mimetically, insofar as it was referenced on an episode of Family Guy, he was in a series of 7-Up commercials where he extolled to the viewer at home that 7-Up was crisp and clean
1: with no caffeine. That's a remarkably convincing impression you're doing, Both. Oh, thank way. you.
0: I've been practicing my Jeffrey Holder. Also, Jeffrey Holder, a.k.a. Baron Samdi, in this movie is very great and did all this choreography and stuff uh, himself. He sort of worked on the staging of this whole performance.
1: Yeah, like this is a, a great little scene. Mm-hmm. We intercut sort of back and forth to the like little musical festival over the next little bit. We cut to the interior where Bond walks in, asks to check into his room and is informed by the concierge that ah yes mrs bond is awaiting your arrival she asked for something a little more private which bond manages to play off fairly nonchalant but is clearly surprised by it's like ah yes mrs bond incurable romantic mrs bond (laughs) yeah he proceeds to the bungalow on his way he walks through the restaurant area where this little show is happening
0: when he gets there he's about to radio in and then realizes wait i should do that thing where i check to see if there's listening devices and indeed there are so he pulls out like a little thing that tells him if there's a listening device and he finds one in a sculpture and one in a button on the bed and so instead of radioing in does some morse code and then runs a bath and orders some champagne for the room gets in the bath shaves and as he's in the bath a hatch above the bathtub opens and a snake is lowered in to the bathroom
1: oh heck what kind of snake is this you better keep this in i am going to google the other ah! snake in live and let die <laughs> what was the snake don't we just go
0: to Snakes on Film? Wasn't that the website?
1: No, it it didn't. It only had the one that I could see. There we go. Where he is nearly tickled to death by a harmless speckled king snake. Oh. In his hotel room, it, it is a speckled king snake.
0: That tracks. It's not even moving very quickly, it, and it's small. It doesn't look especially threatening. Like. If you made this scene now, it would have a much larger snake, but it's just like meandering across the bathroom floor. Things sort of escalate rapidly over the course of this scene. He's in the bathtub. The snake gets introduced into the bathroom. Someone comes into the room and it's the person dropping off his champagne. And we see that it's Whisper, who Bond hasn't seen yet. And so doesn't immediately make Mm -hmm. the connection that this is the guy that was driving the Corvorado earlier.
1: Yeah, I guess he sort of only got like half glimpses of him up to this point. Yeah,
0: he gets out of the bathtub because he can't quite hear whisper asking if he wants him to open it and he says no no i'll take care of that goes back in the bathroom and is putting on aftershave sees the snake behind him now he's just lit a cigar bond smokes cigars now because roger moore smokes cigars
1: his cigars are so amazing in this movie they're, they're, enormous. they're like 10 inches long they're enormous <laughs>
0: and this is i don't recall the brand off hand but this is what roger moore like roger moore of anyone else who's played bond lived that role in real life Right. And these are his brand of cigars. So he was like, Bond should smoke these. And that just meant that there was always these cigars on set. He <laughs> must've smoked like a chimney over the course of these movies. So he uses the cigar to turn his aftershave spray into a flamethrower and burns the snake to a crisp and then puts the aftershave on and then goes back into the main room and now the lights are off and someone's coming in the door so he runs for his gun holster and his gun's been taken so he jumps behind the door as a hand holding a gun comes through the crack in the door and he burns the hand with his cigar judo flips the person onto the bed and her hair flies off because it is mrs bond he says i presume who turns out to be rosie carver who is a cia agent which bond determines because of the gun she starts to explain herself and he's like wait wait stop and he deals with the listening devices then he is just like this gun it's blah 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 blah, standard cia issue the question is why why were you pointing it at me and she says the man who delivered your champagne Doesn't work here. I thought that you were in trouble. I'm sorry. I guess I really screwed this up.
1: We we learn that it's like her first field mission. Well,
0: her second. Her first. Her first. (laughs) Oh, sorry. That's right. Because she says my first was baines and he's like, "Oh, great. I hope I'm in for the same wonderful care you gave him." So
1: this is the scene where I went, "Oh my god, he's such an asshole!" Because like her wig has come off, and he's like, "All right, you better go fix your hair." And she like goes into the bathroom to fix her hair. He gives her no warning about what has just transpired in the bathroom at all. She goes in, sees the snake on the ground, comes running out, freaking out about the snake, like, oh, my God, there's a snake. And he, he just responds with, oh, yes, you should never go in there without your mongoose. <laughs> <laughs> what a line. And like she's beside herself and he is like, no time for it at all. It just just the quips. It's like, oh, I forgot to warn you. Never go in there without your mongoose. Which is
0: only the second best quip of the scene as he tries to make some moves on her and she's like, Felix warned me about this. That's why I got separate bedrooms. Good night. And she goes into the other bedroom and then has another screaming fit. And he comes in and there's a small top hat with bloody chicken feathers on the pillow. And she's deeply affected by this. And he says, well, I don't see what the problem is. It's a, it's just a top hat belonging to a small man of limited means who lost a fight with a chicken. <laughs> just, <laughs> just like... No pause. He's just like, I don't know what's the problem. Now, Rosie Carver is played by Gloria Hendry, who is a great actress who would go on to do tons of other work. Rosie Carver is not a good actress. (laughs) It's already kind of obvious that something is up from her defense of why she was coming into Bond's room with a gun to freaking out about the snake and then freaking out about the hat such that she was like, no, no, I have my own bedroom, freaks out about the hat and then goes, no, don't leave me alone tonight. And it's just, it all seems too easy. This is Mm. awfully convenient that this all came together. We would find out later that Rosie is not entirely on the up and up. In fact, we find out almost immediately because we cut to brunch the next morning being delivered to their room and there's a note for bond with the address of a shop in town that sells tarot cards which we saw in the establishing shot earlier and a tarot card for the queen of cups and bonds like that's weird and he says uh you know what rosie i'm gonna go and arrange a car for later and we see him walk into the tarot shop
1: before we move on from the scene can we talk about what bond is wearing i
0: was hoping you would (laughs) because i saw it and i was like what in the hell i hope matt talks about
1: this matt what is bond wearing in this scene uh this is like a 1970s canadian tuxedo almost (laughs) it is like heather blue or powder blue even so he's wearing a white t-shirt
0: is it a t-shirt it's a very like it it could be a tank top i think it's a tank top
1: it could be a tank top practically
0: sheer and very low neck
1: yeah and then over it he has a two-piece outfit i'm not gonna call it a suit it's not a suit but it's like it's an outfit top and bottom are powder blue the top looks like i don't know it's it's like a button-up shirt but like a heavy material almost looks like denim but there's no way he would be wearing denim in a climate like this it's not clear from the the film what it is actually made of i'm i'm just like trying to give a sense of the texture but it is cut sort of like a jean jacket it's got the like square pockets on both sides he's got the sleeves rolled up sort of to to mid forearm but matched with it are a pair of pants that are also powder blue that are flared widely at the bottom they're not like bell bottoms but they are clearly flared around his ankles and it is i don't if you're familiar with the term canadian tuxedo which is why i went there that is a jean jacket worn with jeans and this is very evocative of that but as filtered through a powder blue 1970s era james bond lens Mm -hmm. it's not my favorite look i didn't think it would be it's salvageable (laughs) i i think you could get away away with wearing something like this today but i don't think you'd want to i think some people would want to that's true
0: that's true
1: (laughs) but i i don't think it's really it puts forward a very different bond Hmm. though right like it it characterizes the kinds of things the ways in which this bond is fashioned forward in a different way than connery it's not a suit you would or an outfit that you would likely have seen connery to wear no it's definitely of
0: of the era The next scene takes us to the harbor where there is a large sign that says, Dr. Kananga reminds the tourist is our friend. His welfare is our concern, which I hadn't noticed until this viewing of the movie.
1: Well, yeah, it's like it's barely visible in shot. Bond walks along all of these boats with captains soliciting from the tourists on shore. It's like, hey, you know, charter boat, let's go catch some fish. You know, I'll take you to where all the good fish are. And they're like, he passes like three or four boats with very eager ship captains before arriving at the final boat in the line where there is a ship captain sitting with his hat over his face and his feet up, clearly sound asleep. And Pod steps onto the boat and kicks him. And the guy sort of wakes up and sort of like disoriented looking sort of starts gathering his stuff. He's like, this one will do helps Rosie onto the boat. Yeah, he says this one seems eager enough. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So they head out to sea. Bond starts to fish off the back of the boat. Rosie like goes up to the captain and is like, where can I change? And uh, and he just looks at her and says nothing. So she interprets that as
0: he doesn't understand English. She tries to make herself understood by the tried and true method of talk loudly and slowly with fewer words. And for some reason, chooses the phrase me clothes off where and I don't know how that's supposed to be an easier thing to understand. Also, you'd think that if she's assigned to San Monique, she'd be able to speak, s- span Frenchish, whatever,
1: French-ish, whatever language yeah. they're supposed to be speaking in San Monique. But he just sort of indicates below decks. She goes downstairs below deck into the the cabin area and she starts to strip off her shirt. It is, in fact, unclear why she needed to go somewhere to change because she's changing into a bathing suit that she was already wearing by merely taking her top Wait, off. Wait, yeah, hang on. Um, but she... <laughs> huh. She hangs her her shirt on a hook on the wall and the hook pulls down, revealing a radio console that is clearly quite high tech and out of place on this book Because like the wall moves among the things on this radio console is a little shelf with a gun on it. This leads Rosie to suspect that something is not as it seems. We then hard cut to this is probably one of my favorite cuts in the movie. As Bond is sitting there fishing, oblivious, and you see the ship captain looming over top of him, coiling a rope Mm -hmm. in a like a really needlessly sinister way in close proximity to Bond, with Bond completely unaware. Rosie, she opens the cabin up and she sees this from behind. And so she points the gun is like, put your hands up, turn around slowly. You know what? What is going on here? And she holds the gun on the ship captain and Bond turns back and looks and sees that this is happening and is not bothered at all.
0: and in fact he says you see what i was saying she's very nice but a lousy agent (laughs) and then says rosie i'd like you to meet and he introduces him as the man who shares my hairbrush quarrel jr now if you remember quarrel from dr no i do this is meant to be his son because in the books live and let die came before dr no so in the books it was just quarrel And then Quarrel comes back in Dr. No and dies. But because these were so out of order and so far apart, this is now we're saying it's Quarrel's son. Right. Which is kind of weird because it's like also Bond is a man unstuck in time. But that comes up a lot anyway.
1: Yeah. 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 I I like it. It's a good reference.
0: Rosie is sort of stunned and being like, I could have shot you. And Quarrel says, you might have even killed me if you'd taken the safety off. (laughs)
1: Everyone's such a jerk in this movie.
0: (laughs) So uh, he asks her where Banes was killed. She sort of points off and says up in the hills over there and he's like all right great well that's where we'll look once we get to land and hire a car and they pass by this house and it's up on the cliffs and bond says to quarrel who lives up there and he says that's where the kananga woman lives they say she has the power of the obia nobody dares go up there and then we cut to solitaire and she's on the phone with kananga doing a reading he's saying rosie is being very efficient so this is where we find out immediately that rosie is working for kananga he says rosie is being very efficient they're almost there how's this going and she Flips over the card. He asks her, Do you see death? Is it death? And she says, Yes, it is death. And she's lying because she's flipped over the lovers again. So she knows even more so now that Bond and her are destined, I guess, by the tarot cards to hook up. And she's also lying to Kananga. Let's talk a little bit about Kananga at this point. Played by Yafet Koto, who is probably best known for his role in Homicide Life on the Street. A <laughs> hundred and gosh, all lots of episodes. He plays Lieutenant Al Ghirardello in Homicide Life on the Street. He also played part. Parker in Alien, and he's also known from this. The character of Dr. Kananga is inspired, not insignificantly, by Francois Duvalier, aka Papa Doc a totalitarian despot of Haiti who used Haitian voodoo to basically scare people into maintaining control of Haiti. So in the same way that Kananga uses the promise of voodoo to keep people away from his criminal enterprise, Duvalier used voodoo to scare people into keeping him in power right i mean not that he necessarily needed to do that as he was unanimously elected in a 1961 election where he was the only candidate and then his son also was in charge of haiti for a while it was a bad time for haiti but that's where the inspiration for dr kananga comes from in the movie he's happy to hear that their plan will result in death bond will be taken care of so bond and rosie are driving around in this car they somehow rented she says oh yes it's down there And he says, I thought you said Baines was killed up in the hills. And she sort of stammers and says, up in the hills down there. And he's like, "Okay, you know what? We're hungry. Let's stop for a picnic. So they stop for a picnic, have sex, of course. That's basically what picnicking means, right? I have to assume. I've never been. Just remember, his picnic with Sylvia Trench. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I guess that is just James Bond code for having sex outside. After they do that, he asks her sort of idly, do you know what the Queen of Cups means in an inverted position? And he holds up the tarot card that he was given that morning at brunch. A lying, deceitful woman and I'd like some answers now as he says brandishing a gun at her and she's like I don't I don't know what I don't know what you're talking about and he's like well you'd better tell me and she says I can't or they'll kill me bond says well I'll kill you if you don't she protests you wouldn't kill me after what we've just done and bond says I certainly wasn't going to kill you beforehand
1: he's such a jerk <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're not wrong so she makes the call to run away bolts into the jungle and he's like "Wait, waha!" Well, huh? and chases after her because she spots a scarecrow and freaks out and he's like you got to stop this act of pretending to be freaked out by like voodoo omens and she's like i'm not acting And he's like, "Okay, well, then tell me, I guess, and I'll make sure they don't kill you. And she just takes off and he runs after her. And another one of these little scarecrows has binocular eyes and a gun in its mouth and kills Rosie as she tries to run away.
1: I love the little scarecrow with the two little binocular like camera eyes. And the gun in its mouth. It's great. I think this is a great little set piece. It is so very this movie, but it's hilarious. I love it. It is one of my favorite things about this entire film.
0: We touched on it a bit at the beginning, and I don't think we need to necessarily retread it, but I do just want to call out that it is really uncomfortable that the first black woman as a co-star for James Bond is also secretly evil. That's sort of wrapped into the much larger issues with this movie, but I did just want to mention that, yes, we see that it's not a great look. But coming back to some questions I have within the world of the movie, I don't understand why they don't kill Bond here. Right? Because he catches up to her and he's standing. Does this thing only have one
1: shot? Yeah. He's like in the middle of the clearing, standing over her body, looking around, trying to find what killed her. Like just standing there. Where is it? I don't know. Fire another round. Solve. Kill two birds with two stones. Solve the problem. But instead we cut to Kananga and
0: Teehee talking to Solitaire, going, what happened? We had a plan. Teehee was waiting for them. She was going to lead him to the trap we had set. And you saw death. What the hell? And she says, well, the death must have been her death. If you don't ask me specific questions, I can't give you the right responses. Also, I want to point out that Solitaire in this moment is sitting in this amazing costume throne that it's like a Queen Amidala looking thing. It's amazing. Part of throne part costume just phenomenal setup
1: yeah the the crown and cape are like built into it so that when she does eventually get up she like lifts the crown off her head and the like the cape opens around her and she steps out and it and she's just like All the parts of her clothing that you can see in this scene are not actually her clothing. They are all parts of the chair.
0: It's really cool. Kananga is pretty upset when she sort of talks back with like, look, if you don't ask specific questions, I can't give you specific answers. And without getting into the specifics that we'll discover later, he is like, look, your powers exist to serve me. That's why these powers are here. It was the same for your mother. And it's up to me how you use your powers, and it's going to be up to me when you lose your powers and more on that later as we cut to a hang glider.
1: The hang glider. (laughs) I love this hang glider. There's so many things I love about this movie. Bond hanging from the hang glider. It's one of those ones that's got like a seat. You know, there's the hang gliders where you're like in a sleeping bag, sort of suspended horizontally behind it. He's not. He's got his arms propped up on the bar. He is sitting in like a swing chair just below the bar, but he is in a full suit. He's got a, a black suit on. It's his stealth suiting, apparently. But underneath, he's got a, a white shirt with blue stripes and a tie with another gigantic cigar in his mouth, looking over the island as the hang glider itself is suspended from the back of Quarrel's boat. So the hang gliding stunt
0: in this movie is worth talking about because this is something that I love that the Bond films do more and more as they go on, even up to the present day, which is that they find something new get the person who created it and bring them onto the movie to do it Mm. so so all the hang gliding in this movie was coordinated and performed by bill bennett who is basically the guy who invented modern hang gliding which was only just becoming a known quantity around the time of this movie so they were like Oh, that's new and interesting. Get the guy that made it, bring him over here, get him to do it on camera. And this would happen, I mean, in the next movie with a specific car jump stunt, later with base jumping, even with parkour in Casino Royale. It's Mm -hmm. like, find the person who created the thing, get them to do the thing for a Bond movie. (laughs) which right. i've always enjoyed
1: so one of the things i love about just the fantasy of james bond is that he is preternaturally capable in all of these skills yeah right like he can do anything at a professional level like the skiing in honor Majesty's secret service and now hang gliding it does not hold up to scrutiny or logic at all right like you you spend any any time whatsoever thinking about it and you're like you know to use the the common expression it takes 10,000 hours to master a skill there are not that many he has so many skills there are not that many hours in his life but the the fantasy of him always being exceptionally skillful at everything he does is one of the things that I think really sells these movies and is just like one of the more fun things about it he's an incredible golfer and he's an accomplished skier he has sex every day (laughs) he knows all the finest wines by taste and can identify the vintage on which Sherry is based. He can differentiate between a 57 and a 59 Bollinger. He he knows what the best whiskies taste like and how, how sake is best served. Any any normal person with a job <laughs> <laughs> maybe has enough time to cultivate one of those skills in their spare yeah. time. So I like I like that a lot. I it's one of the things that really draws me to the Bond movies, is just that his superpower is that he's superpowered at every
0: As demonstrated by flipping the release on the hang glider, taking a wide turn around Solitaire's estate, knocking a guard in the back of the head so that he falls off a cliff, landing the hang glider, then pulling off tearaway pants and reversing his jacket (laughs) so that he's now wearing a beige suit for no reason other than it will look
1: nicer. I love it. It's he's only wearing the black suit because it's stealthy. And as soon as he's hit ground, he's now wearing I mean, it's it's a camo suit. It's not like it's a tan suit, but it will it will functionally operate as camouflage if he needs to like hunker down in the grass or whatever.
0: So he goes into Solitaire's house. She's in bed and she finds him sitting in her ridiculous crown cape chair playing with the tarot cards and he is like so remember what the card said about us being lovers so we should you know we should do that and she's like no i can't i i can't do that i'm not allowed and i can't and he's like but you do believe in the cards right and she says yes with all my heart they've never lied to me and so he says well then go ahead and pick one and she flips over the top card of the deck and it's the lovers and she's like pretty emotional about this bond's like well great then let's start doing kisses the camera pans down and he puts down the rest of the deck of cards that he's holding and they are all the lovers so this is incredibly uncomfortable yeah because even though she has given indication that she does want to have sex with bond in a hypothetical sense and even though the card's in whatever way that they function, have previously indicated that she and Bond are destined to have sex and that she very much believes that, this is still Bond lying to her and coercing her into sex that she would not necessarily have had otherwise, at least
1: not in this moment. Yeah, uh, this is one of those ones where it's like consent is not even really possible in this context, because like, she believes in the cards and the cards have said they're fated to get it on which now she believes she has to and Bond is capitalizing on that like he's already figured this out and so Bond is taking advantage of the situation and then also rigging it to make sure that nothing gets in the way but the like I mean this is a deterministic thing right like if she truly believes that the cards are telling her future and that there's no way she can deviate from that future then it no longer matters what the circumstances are she has to go along with what the cards say you you can't consent in a situation like that it's not possible yeah the bond is taking advantage in this scene it is uncomfortable and he learns in the following scene that she's not too happy about what has gone down because she it it is revealed that she only has her powers she believes she only has her powers as long as she remains a virgin and this was her first time She's now obviously pretty broken up about the fact that she believes her powers are gone. And Bond actually looks a little awkward in the scene. and is like, so full disclosure, I did rig the deck in my favor. And she's like, well, it doesn't matter because what's done is done. But like, I will, I will not have this power again. As she
0: says, a violation cannot be undone. Right. Because that's what this is. It's a violation. Like, as you say, there is a situation where... There could not be consent given, meaning there wasn't really consent, meaning it's rape. Yeah. And gross. And no amount of Bond being remorseful about that, which he is, but no amount of that makes that OK. As written, she comes around to the idea fairly quickly and is like, well, if that's the way things are, that's the way things are. Round two, which is like, uh, <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I actually so I take the line like the violation cannot be undone to refer to her actions in like violating the requirements upon her to retain her powers. That is certainly I believe how she is meaning it. She believes that this
0: was a failure on her part. Yes. Well, not even it's no, that's that's not even necessarily correct. Because again, yeah, she sort of has all her belief wrapped up in what the cards say so that she's not even really exerting any agency on her life up until this point like this is now when she gets to actually make her own decisions because up until now she's only been doing what the cards say even before bond stacked the deck the cards indicated to her that they would have sex again not necessarily at that moment that was because bond stacked the deck but
1: at some point
0: yeah but now she's like well now i have to learn how to think for myself basically because she's lived her whole life Mm -hmm. either doing what Kananga tells her or doing what the cards say she's destined to do
1: yeah and she will in fact say at a later point that the cards willed it like the cards took her power away because the cards told her that this is what she was going to do and she understood that that could not be like if the card said it it had to be true so that i think is why she is able to come around to it to the idea of like actually having sex with james bond is not so bad after all just because she she doesn't seem to regard anything that has happened in this situation up to this point as being within the scope of her agency uh-huh. at all whether she did Or did not is not her choice, which is gross. Like that's problematic as hell. Well,
0: because this is an uncomfortable subject, I do just want to make it really clear that we're not excusing Bond because Bond doesn't believe in this crap. Right, as far as he's concerned, right, he's taking advantage of her. And even though, and I do think it's important, even though the cards that she truly believes in did previously say that they would have sex, not necessarily at this moment. And the only reason it happens at this moment is because of. Of bond deceiving her deceiving her yeah. yes
1: yeah i mean like as i say she does not appear to have believed that she had any agency up to this point so whatever bond is doing in this situation is naturally violating her agency because she doesn't believe she has any
0: it becomes very difficult to talk about when you wrap destiny into a conversation of consent it's really challenging <laughs> we're doing our best <laughs> in this one i yeah i hope It is satisfactory.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is very clear from the way the scene falls out. In any case, it's very clear that James Bond in this scene is weaponizing sex. That is 100% what it is. He has. Deceived someone into having sex with him so that he can gain an ally, so that he can get information about the dude that he needs to kill. That is the level he is operating on here. And
0: that's pretty gross. You're right, because he's only interested in basically have sex with her to breach her defenses, so that I can then ask her questions about how I can get at Kananga. And as she's explaining her feelings about this, he actually has. emotion and feels remorse which is this is sort of what i'm talking about with moore's portrayal of bond being more empathetic than connery's and so he basically commits to all right i'm gonna help you figure a way out of this i'm gonna help you navigate your feelings on this also i'll make sure he doesn't kill you he starts basically coming up with a list of lover's lessons so he's like i'm paraphrasing but it's essentially lover's lesson number one you know we're a team or something and then lover's lesson number two is like no secrets or something this all comes up in conversation. And then he starts to get dressed. And then she says, before we leave, is there time for lesson number three? And then he takes his shirt back off and they go back for round two. And I I mentioned that because in the next scene, they're walking through the jungle and they come across scarecrows. And he's like, well, their scarecrows are for people. So obviously that's the way that we should go. Because there's Scarecrows telling us not to go there. So, lover's lesson number four, follow the Scarecrows.
1: And it's just like, I think you've (laughs) reduced the efficacy of what you're saying. Just a little bit. So they do follow the Scarecrows. And they end up in a graveyard where none other than Baron Samdi himself is is located playing a flute. Obviously, he's not being Baron Samity here. He's just like, I guess he's meant to look like a... A
0: hobo? I'm not entirely sure. He's just like a guy playing a flute in the graveyard and he just is sort of like, you know, it's going to be a wonderful day and sort of says hi and they're like, OK, hi. And as they leave, He grabs his flute, like twists it and an antenna comes out and it's a little radio. And he's like, they're going towards the field. Teehee calls into Kananga. He has this air of like, just can't be bothered right now. He's like, if he finds it, kill him. Just like, I kind of like that he's given up on like trying to actively kill him. He's like, this guy just keeps farting around my stuff. And it's like, if he wants to entertain himself,
1: I guess, whatever. Just keep him out of my hair. If he finds the thing then fine kill him whatever so what does bond do he immediately finds the thing bond and solitaire are sort of walking along through jungle greenery they come across a a field of opium poppies hidden under camouflage nets as they sort of come to realize what what's going on a helicopter approaches and starts shooting at them so they you know dive for cover and manage to avoid the first volley of shots and then because the whole field is under camouflage nets they run into the fields under the camouflage nets so that the helicopter can't spot them.
0: They escape the fields into a small village where they walk very calmly and casually under the watchful eye of police officers who are obviously working for kananga and in fact they get radioed in being like find bond but the girl is not to be harmed they like commandeer this double-decker bus and then we get this car chase with them just hauling ass on this double-decker bus being chased by three men on motorbikes and there's a segment of the highway that is slick with water because of uh waves from a high tide and the bus pulls a complete spin just like the driver cranks this massive 180 spin and the motorcycles go flying in a bunch of different directions. The driver was a man who used to do London double-decker bus driving lessons. Oh yeah. And the person in the back of the bus where Jane Seymour's character is sitting was Jane Seymour. (laughs) what and the the behind the scenes on the dvd they're like i don't know why anyone thought this was a good idea but that's just jane seymour back there she's like why was i back there why was why did that have to actually be me (laughs) so through this whole bus sequence like then they start being chased by police cars and they run down an area where it's like warning clearance nine foot six and james floors it so that the bus runs into this low bridge and gets the entire top sheared off of it jane Seymour's in the bus for that stunt that's ridiculous it's a great stunt but boy that's wildly unsafe so the top of the bus gets sheared off lands on one of the pursuing police cars which then drives around with the top of a bus on it and flies into a pond bond drives this lower half of a bus all the way out onto a dock (laughs) sending a bunch of fishermen and flying as they jump out of the way into the water and they leap onto Quarrel's boat, make a hasty escape.
1: They're not being actively, like, immediately pursued no. at this point, right? Like, they've lost their tail. But for some reason, Quarrel gives Bond a machete to, like, chop the rope so that they can take off. And I'm like, it would have taken three seconds to untie. Yeah. Come on, James.
0: <laughs> they head back out to sea. James says to radio Felix because they want to head to New Orleans because there's some sort. Of connection between Kananga and the Filet of Soul restaurants and something's up in New Orleans because that's where the other agent died. So there has to be, you know, what's what's the other shoe here? So they get out of the airport and into a taxi. And wouldn't you know it, there's a real problem with getting picked up at the airport if you're James Bond. Who could have guessed who should be the cab driver of the car at the airport, but the same cab driver that drove Bond to Harlem back in New York? I just love he sits down and the driver just goes, Well, hey there, Jim. (laughs) and flips a switch and this barrier pops up to keep them trapped in the back of the car Kananga is good friends with Mr. Big and Mr. Big hears that Bond was very mean to Mr. Kananga down in San Monique and wants to have a talk with him about it
1: so they arrive at an airport lots of henchmen waiting at a plane at the airport they're like you made a mistake Bond back of that island you know we're we're heading to take you to Kananga and they motion him into the plane he goes to get on the plane and he turns around and a, a brief conversation Ensues and Solitaire swings her bag at him, which he deflects and and manages to make a break for it. He knocks out a couple of the guys and, and makes a break for it by rolling under the plane and running off to a nearby hangar. The hangar being the home of a flight school. He hops into this like little. All right, now we have to go to the internet movie plane database again, but a little like a little trainer plane, like a Cessna or whatever. I was
0: gonna say Cessna, and I hope that that's not just making assumptions about all small planes are Cessnas all small planes are Cessnas but yeah he jumps into it and there's a woman there waiting to do her lesson she's like you're not Mr. Bleaker and he's like uh he's been indisposed I'll be doing the lesson today and just floors it in this plane but like not to take off just drive around because <laughs> there's not enough room to like take off
1: every time he like tries to get to a spot where he can take off or or like get away a car pulls in front of him and he has to pull a turn this is a great little scene like this chase sequence around the airport is awesome it super entertaining this is very emblematic of a lot of the action scenes in more bond movies where he'll have like a comic relief character or like a straight man character a civilian there's somebody for him to riff against and to like add some levity to the scene they're driving all around the airport and the the chase cars are like crashing into planes and wrecking other like breaking planes in half and bond manages to sort of like make a break for it he goes through a hangar and they're they like they close the doors on the plane to try and stop him from getting out and he just floors it straight through and that tears the wings of the plane off he ultimately just pulls the plane back up out in front of the flight school in view of the flight school operator who's still on the phone in the office and hops out and makes a run for it leaves the poor pilot trainee just sitting in the passenger seat wide-eyed as the flight school owner looks on and he quips on his way out of the airplane to the the trainee it's like same time tomorrow. So I just looked it up and this is in fact a Cessna 140. Got there all small planes are Cessnas. So I'm not entirely
0: sure how Bond actually gets away from this point because theoretically there's like a ton of dudes not that far away with cars.
1: I mean they just cut away right like there is no exit but the implication is that he has wrecked all the cars in this chase and has just made a getaway.
0: And then we get a scene I love this of Felix Leiter on the phone with the guy who runs the flight school just screaming at him about all the damage that Bond caused and you're only getting Felix's half of the conversation he's just like yeah. Yes, Mr. Bleeker. Yes. Now, there's no need for name-calling. Yes, sir. sir. (laughs) Well, we'll take care of... Yes, sir. Oh, no one is doubting your commitment to America, sir. I'm sure you're a veteran. What a great little exchange. Felix Leiter, the man who can fix anything. There's a bit where a man presents Bond with a selection of ties. I thought you'd appreciate this when he's like, oh, I like that one. This one's a little frantic. I'll keep the other three.
1: (laughs) I like that he's being fitted for a suit. Yeah, why now? It's going to take 40 hours to cut that suit. Why are you being fitted for a suit now? Why are you not? Did you bring your tailor in from Seville Row? Where is that? Why are you getting an American suit? Who are you? And what have you done with James (laughs) Bond?
0: Ah! <laughs> So they're trying to figure out the connection between Dr. Kananga and Mr. Big. Felix says that Strutter is watching the Filet of Soul restaurant because they know that Mr. Big has a connection there. We cut to Strutter watching that, and it's the same Filet of Soul restaurant that the agent was watching in the pre-title sequence.
1: And he's leaning against the same
0: lamppost. And around the corner comes this... the same jazz funeral. In fact, I believe it's the same two little old ladies in the street corner watching it too. And the same man steps up beside Strutter, and just smiles and then we cut to strutter is now
1: gone and the music is happy which is a great way to do this scene it's very efficient they don't need to retread it we know what's happening
0: yeah bummer for strutter as a character but it's pretty great as you say the pacing of the scene funeral continues on as bond and felix roll up in a taxi and they're just like oh that that's neat yeah hell of a send-off felix says so they head into the fillet of soul. much more pleasant reaction because they're probably used to dealing with tourists, considering that they're in Bourbon Street rather than Harlem. And the waiter says, I got a nice booth here for you guys. And Bond's like, ah, uh, do you have something closer to the music? And then says to Felix, I had a nasty turn in a booth once.
1: I love this scene, too. He's like, yeah, I, I had a nasty turn in a booth and, and they like set up a table for him, a table that's like front and center in the middle of the restaurant. They, you know, they sit down, the music starts. And this is where we have the woman singing Live and Let Die. Felix orders a couple of drinks we get to watch the performance of the woman singing for a while
0: the waiter comes up to him and says one of you guys named Felix Yeah. Telephone call for you. Fellow named Strutter.
1: Uh, So Felix gets up to go receive the phone call and Bond sits at the table continuing to watch this musical performance only for the table and all of the chairs to sink into the floor. Like a hatch has opened up. He is pulled down on this elevator to the floor below. The floor seals above him and the waitstaff replace the table and the chairs and the drinks and the whole bit as if Bond was never there. Felix comes back and is like, what happened to my friend and the waiter angrily is like what happened to your friend listen and then the
0: scene cuts (laughs) but it's like like, he's about to tell felix that like bond did something awful
1: bond is in a dark room and is immediately illuminated by four spotlights directly on him. We can't see much of what's in, in the back of the room. It behooves me
0: to make a Star Trek The Next Generation reference and remind you there are in fact four lights.
1: So the lights come down and we see that Mr. Big is seated at the back of the room with Solitaire to his right reading the tarot cards and T. is standing in the room and Mr. Big dismisses his other henchmen and begins to question Bond. The main thing he's
0: concerned with on behalf of Dr. Kananga is, as he indicates Solitaire did you mess with that meaning her the cards the powers all of that so bond realizes that he has a chance to live because a lot of bond's ploys involve buying extra time right Mm -hmm. if people would just kill this guy he'd be way less effective (laughs) so he says well that's between myself and solitaire and dr kananga and i'll tell him when i see him mr big presses further and bond is like no no I will tell Kananga and then Mr. Big reaches up and grabs his face, rips forward as his skin stretches and distorts and then eventually tears off, revealing Dr. Kananga beneath heavy makeup is Mr. Big. What a great
1: moment. It's a great moment. It is like the Mission Impossible mask before Mission Impossible masks were a thing in outside of the tv show i imagine there were masks on the tv show it certainly is like a hell of a scene <laughs> he's tearing his face off in front of bond and kananga is
0: furious i i love yafet koto's portrayal of kananga slash mr big in this movie in the way that he is very calm and full of himself in the way that a good bond villain is very confident but at the same time the bursts of anger i really like and i think they're played very very well i like the one earlier when he's talking to solitaire and he's really really upset and then he's like solitaire you've made me upset with you and i have no desire to be so please leave in this moment he's furious with bond and then calms down immediately once he's torn the makeup off and starts gently removing the rest of the presumably spirit gum or whatever the makeup application is
1: He goes over to like a little makeup counter to like clean up his face before coming back. And you're right, he's he's completely calmed down. His demeanor is like it's warm, but it's not furious. But there's like a simmering anger under the surface that he's keeping restrained, which is is quite good. This is
0: when Bond puts everything together and he realizes that Kananga's plan is he's growing all these poppies to make heroin, which he is then going to distribute as Mr. Big through this nationwide network of fillet of Soul restaurants, which will probably upset all the people that distribute heroin presently. He makes some comment about the street value. Kananga laughs it off and Bond says, oh, of course, I'm sure you're just going to give it away. And he says, "Why, Mr. Bond, that's precisely what I intend to do. He says, when you're entering into a fiercely competitive market, it's best to give away free samples. He's planning on giving away $2 billion dollars. Remember we were talking earlier about how a hamburger was 65 cents? (laughs) Two billion with a B dollars of heroin. To put the mafia out of business, Bond mentions a group of families that will be very upset. And to increase the number of heroin junkies in the country and then start charging. Once he's the only name in town. He says it will leave myself and the phone company as the only two monopolies going. AT&T got hit with the antitrust monopoly stuff around
1: this time then he says but mr bond the question still stands did you touch solitaire bond continues to no sell this he he refuses He's like a gentleman never tells and kananga says well i'm sure that solitaire being nonetheless a lady will also choose not to tell so i am going to test you he orders tee to take off bond's watch tee he takes the watch off and hands it to kananga T.
0: he fumbles slightly which causes bond to quip butterhook <laughs>
1: so kananga grabs the watch he looks at the watch he looks to to solitaire and he basically is like solitaire i'm going to ask you a question teehee if she answers incorrectly i want you to clip off the end of bond's little finger at the first knuckle and for every subsequent wrong answer move i i don't remember exactly what he says but he's like move to more we will move to more delicate areas that's right and being very deliberate in his wording kananga says to solitaire It's like on the back of mr bond's watch there is a registration number the registration number reads and it's a four digit code starting in three i don't remember what it is exactly but it's like three two nine six or whatever then he pauses and he's like is what i have said the truth solitaire reads the tarot cards and, and says yes and upon hearing this kananga tells teehee to Back away, don't cut off Bond's finger. Much to Teehee's sort of resigned sadness. And he's like, all right, you're free to go. You can- <laughs> She answered correctly, so away you go. As Bond is standing up from the chair that he's been bolted into and putting his watch back on, Teehee clubs him across the back of the neck, rendering him unconscious. This is where Whisper comes in and just heft spawned off the table under one arm and carries him out of the room as a, an unconscious body baron Samdi comes in makes his presence known and kananga is clearly stewing in his seat he ultimately looks to solitaire who's clearly pretty uncomfortable about what's going on just says solitaire i gave you every chance he says you had a 50 50 shot and you weren't even close <laughs> and Baron Samdi burns one of the Solitaire cards. But at this point, Solitaire knows she's busted. Specifically, Baron Samdi
0: lights the High Priestess card on fire and shows mm-hmm. it to Kananga, who just, like, shakes off the fire in disgust. Because Samdi is like, well, your High Priestess is ruined. Samdi is like, he gets away with a lot.
1: Yeah, he he's like the trickster god of this movie yeah. a little bit. Like, he is sort of always on the market. He's not often really, like, present as a henchman. He's just adding flavor yeah. <laughs> to the scenes that he's in a lot of the time. Anyhow, Kananga comes over and is like he, what he says, I think is something to the effect of like, I would have shown you love when the time was right. Your powers exist to serve me.
0: And when the time was right, I would have taken them away. I would have given you love, which is like right. Him saying I was going to have sex with you when I decided and not when
1: you decided. Yeah. I mean, the implications of what he's saying are still pretty gross. Oh, yeah. A- at any rate, he like he knocks her down as he's like stewing with with anger we then cut to bond in the back of the back seat of a car between two henchmen with two henchmen in the front seat bond still totally unconscious the car drives up to a gate that has a sign and the sign says trespassers will be eaten you will be
0: delighted to know that that is not the work of the art department that was already there that's great in fact while they were doing louisiana location reconnaissance they were driving around and they passed by this place they hadn't intended to go with a sign that said trespassers will be eaten and the- And they said, what is that? What is this? We need to find out what this is. So what is it? It's a crocodile farm. It sure is. (laughs) Run by a man credited in the opening titles as a stunt coordinator by the name of Ross Kananga. Really? Yes. They named the villain after him. That's awesome. Because they thought it was such a fun name. It is a good name. And he he runs this crocodile farm. He had like 1,200 crocs. He took it over after his dad. He performed all of the stunts when Bond is standing really close to crocodiles, but you can't see Roger Moore's face.
1: Huh? Yeah. All right. So they arrive... At the crocodile farm. And it is a crocodile farm in the context of the film as well, not just in real life. Yeah and bond sort of like wakes up and and is escorted out of the car by t and into this like rusted out disaster of a barn and inside is a drug lab like a clean room looking drug lab yeah like a clean room looking drug, drug lab with like pontoon style distribution platforms and like all sorts of stuff and so t he walks bond out and they they walk past and make a pointed glance towards a boat parked at a dock t like goes over and and there's a bunch of little baby crocodiles little babies waves his hook at them uh it's like they're cute aren't they and and bond quips oh he's like i don't suppose those future future handbags are the only crocodiles you have around here and t he says oh no we've got moms and dads too he leads him over to some buckets of chicken where he like digs out a bunch of chicken onto a platter and Bond sort of suspiciously eyes all the crocodiles swimming in the water around. And as soon as Teehee cracks open one of the buckets with his claw, all of the crocodiles pile into the water. Teehee is not being super subtle about his plan here. <laughs> He is like, it's my favorite time of day, feeding time, just being generally sinister. And he walks Bond out onto this little bridge and pitches some chicken into the water, which gets the crocodiles eating, walks him out to a little island in the middle of the river, tosses out the remaining chicken. As Bond is sort of looking at the chicken, Teehee steps back onto the bridge, which retracts from the island leaving bond on the island surrounded by concentric rings of chicken and crocodiles (laughs) he says there are two ways to disable a crocodile bond and bond's like well i don't suppose you'd care to divulge that information to he says well the first is you take a pencil jam it in the little hole right behind their eyes bond sort of pats his breast pocket noting that he doesn't have a pencil on him right uh he's like in the second oh the second's twice as simple (laughs) And he says, well, you just reach into their mouth and you pull out all their teeth. I love. Oh, it's so simple. So we are now in the point in the movie where it's basically like a hard burn from here to the, the finale of the film. Yeah, it is. It's set off by a stunt. I love. Yeah. <laughs> so bond is stranded on this little island in the middle of this swamp wearing crocodile shoes wearing crocodile shoes and a tan suit which apparently was roger moore's idea that's a great idea surrounded by chicken which is consequently surrounded by crocodiles and he like the crocodiles are starting to make their move right like they're they're coming in to eat him he manages to keep a few of them at bay by tossing out pieces of chicken to them but they he's rapidly running out of chicken to appease them there are hundreds of crocodiles and they just keep coming bond is starting to sweat he's not not got any idea how he's going to get himself out of this. He sees a boat, and so he pulls up his watch, which you know we've established as the magnet thing. And he turns on the magnet, and it grabs the oar locks on the boat, and the boat starts to drift towards him. And he's like, "All right, all right, I'm maneuvering it." And just as it looks like it's going to succeed, it turns out the boat is tied off with a rope and cannot make it to the island. So he's like, "All right, well, shoot."
0: I mentioned this earlier, but I love that—that that it's
1: like, no. The gadget doesn't get you out of this. Yeah, you, you gotta you got to think twice as hard as that, Bond. Now, at this point, the crocodiles are like on the island, a couple of feet away from him. So he, he like continues throwing chicken to appease them, but things are looking bad. And then he looks behind him, notices that there are crocodiles in the water behind him, aligned suspiciously in a row. <laughs> and he proceeds to run across the back of five crocodiles to dry land.
0: Assuming that you haven't looked this up independently, I would love to hear your thoughts on how they achieved this stunt.
1: Knowing the era, and knowing that this is an actual crocodile farm, and that there's an actual crocodile farmer who did this, (laughs) or who did the crocodile stunts, I would not be surprised to learn that they just actually ran across the back of five crocodiles. The crocodiles lined up in a row behind him are clearly prop crocodiles. Those are, like, the, the shot of him looking over his shoulder and there are five crocodiles perfectly parallel to one another in the water and the water is just and they're immobile and the water is just bubbling that's a prop to make the, the effect work but when he runs across the crocodiles they all like rear up to bite him i 70 percent sure that he just did that
0: everything that you just said is almost completely accurate <laughs> except that i don't know that those were actually prop crocodiles oh they're totally
1: stationary
0: yeah because they tied their legs down
1: okay the amount of bubbles in that one shot makes me feel like they're prop crocodiles
0: i mean maybe they are but certainly the ones that he jumped across it took him five takes but he actually just ran across the back of five live crocodiles you're totally right
1: yeah I figured as much. Now, now that I'm looking at it, you're right. They might not be. They might not be prop crocodiles. They're all like they are all st- sitting immobile and there's bubbling in the water, which I assume was an effect. Hmm. So anyhow, Bond escapes by running across the back of all these crocodiles. It's great. Who
0: By the way, got more and more upset as the takes went on. No doubt. Yeah, by the fifth take, they started like rearing up and biting at him before he had even gotten to them. But probably they were really pissed off at that point.
1: Well, uh, wouldn't you be if you had been run over by a person five times. Bond escapes. He runs back over to the barn. He grabs a whole bunch of chicken onto a platter. He opens the gate to the crocodile paddock. He throws the chicken into the drug lab. And then in the ensuing chaos, he grabs a canister of gasoline, dumps it on the sides of the building, which he then lights on fire. Bond causes a ton of chaos here as he lights this place up, runs crocodiles into it so that all the scientists who are inside doing all the the drug lab work run. Out, he uses this chaos as a cover to run for the boat on the dock that he had looked at earlier. He hops in the boat and makes a getaway, but t he notices him and and calls on one of the other henchmen to like chase him down in a car. The bond takes off in the boat, leaving this this burning drug lab in his wake. Thus begins the chase scene that makes up the majority of the third act of this film.
0: The other henchman there is the only major kananga henchman that doesn't have some sort of interesting quirk at his name is adam he's got a great coat he does have a great coat
1: he's got like a turtleneck sweater and then a black and white tweed pattern jacket on mm-hmm. i love the jacket
0: he immediately gets on the radio in his car and says bond's taken one of our boats and he's heading for wherever some landmark the man who gets him stays alive <laughs> now move you mother <laughs> and it, the scene cuts before he swears but it's move you mother and then everyone starts scrambling for their own boats and yeah this is this is a terrific chase this boat chase through the through the bayous is so good yeah and it was apparently it was written down as scene 156 the most terrific boat chase you've ever seen
1: mission accomplished
0: (laughs) <laughs> but that's all they had. They didn't have any other information.
1: Bond's in this, like, like to describe the boat chase, we, we can't go through the whole thing, no. I'm sure. But like Bond hops in this boat and he's got multiple other boats on his tail. And like the key feature of this chase scene is that they they jump the boats over land repeatedly. They're flying along and Bond hops a little sandbar and a couple of the other boats hop the sandbar. One gets sort of knocked off and stuck in the trees. And then we cut back to the henchman in the car who's flying down the highway away and he passes a louisiana the sportsman's paradise sign behind which is everybody's favorite character and by everybody's favorite character i mean this character is wildly divisive depending on what you like or dislike about james bond movies
0: i admit i love this racist piece of crap
1: i have a soft spot for sheriff jw pepper
0: Sheriff jw pepper uh- <laughs>
1: He is a total incompetent, racist, hick cop from Louisiana, and I know a lot of people hate him. I think the the one redeeming feature of this character is that everybody hates him. Oh, yeah. Everyone hates this guy. Even, Even the other cops yeah. don't like him. No, they don't. (laughs) Like he is the comedic relief for this scene for obvious reasons, but he gets no respect from anyone. And that I think is the only thing that makes the character work as well as it does, because he is just so completely outclassed by everything going on. And he thinks he's on top of it. And he is truly not. He's
0: got a huge gut. He's got chewing tobacco that he's constantly spitting the entire time. He has this massive accent and he's got just this... overwhelming personal confidence that's wholly unearned
1: yeah he starts the chase for the henchman the henchman left him in, in the dust right mm-hmm. he's like begins to chase after him and th- the henchman pulls off the road on that sort of like the edge of the river to see if he can spot bond out in the water and while he's parked the sheriff pulls up behind him gets out of the car you know it, he is a he's a racist cop mm-hmm. and this is a black henchman so he pulls up behind him and he's like that's a nice set of wheels you got there boy if they're yours, and then is like, you know the drill, hands on the hood, and he he goes to search him. The whole situation is basically diffused because the henchman is caught and JW is not interested in giving him any leeway whatsoever. But as he's got him up against the hood of the car, it happens that they're on a little like road across a waterway. So Bond leaps his boat over the waterway. So the boat goes sailing through the air over the top of both of the cars. The pursuit boats go to do the same thing. And the first pursuit boat biffs the jump and the pursuit boat goes right into the sheriff's car, demolishing it. And then a couple other boats go over and and continue the chase with Bond. And Sheriff Pepper looks at his car and is stunned for a moment. Adam takes this opportunity to hop in his car and hightail it out of there. JW is like face down in the dirt, sees the two boats driving off in the one direction and the car going in the other direction. And like a henchman who fell out of his boat crawling up the water on the other side and realizes that he's beat, right? His car is wrecked. There's nothing he can do. The local highway patrol car pulls up behind
0: them. So that boat jump of Bond's boat, which obviously Roger Moore was not piloting at that moment, was... Was at the time. Oh, you're spoiling the illusion. A Guinness World Record. Oh, 33 and a half meters. So 110 feet
1: of jump distance. That's incredible.
0: That record only stood for three years.
1: <laughs> so the highway patrol car pulls up, which, as I say, even the other cops don't like this guy. So we've got a good quip here where the driver of the car is like, what is that? And the, the passenger in the car is like, that's one of them new car boats. <laughs> Yeah. Sheriff walks up and is like, you know, by the power vested in me by the state of Louisiana, I do hereby commandeer this car and all persons who reside within. And that means you, boy. That
0: means you smart ass.
1: <laughs> he hops in the car and they continue the chase. Then we cut back to the boat chase, which is considerably more awesome. Bond's had a hole shot in his
0: gas tank and is starting to lose power. So it takes a hard turn on onto someone's lawn the pursuing boat follows him onto the lawn but has less control and ends up in these people's pool (laughs) bond jumps out of the boat he was driving and into the boat owned by the people whose pool this is and tears off again quick boat upgrade it's great i love it back in the highway patrol car we hear that the highway patrol has set up a i mean not a roadblock but you know a river block with a bunch of i think
1: they actually call it a road i think
0: they do too yeah with a bunch of local boats to stop them and then we then cut to that and we see bond's boat and the boats that are chasing him just completely blow right through it without even stopping
1: why would you put the small rickety boats in the middle of the road
0: i don't know sheriff pepper shows up and the head of the highway patrol is pulling himself out of the river they're talking about how they need to find a faster boat and he says ah my cousin billy bob he's got the fastest boat on the whole bayou you get my cousin billy bob he'll take care of him and we cut to his cousin billy bob who is at the ranger station so we've now got the sheriff the highway patrol and the park rangers sheriff pepper is on the radio to this guy saying you know you got to come catch him and he's like no worries jw i'll take care of that just as that conversation is ending adam drives up to the ranger station well, hey there. I'd like to ask you about borrowing this boat of yours. And as Billy Bob is bending down to tie off the boat, he's saying, "Oh, everybody on the river would like to borrow this boat." And Adam just knocks him out. Just mm-hmm. whips him in the back of the head with the butt of his gun and steals this very fast, very cool-looking boat. And so then there's a little bit of a comedy scene of JW being like, "There he is. There's my cousin Billy Bob. If one side of the family can't get him, the other or not cousin, uh brother-in-law. That's it because he says if one yeah, side of yeah, yeah, the family can't get him, the other side will." As adam comes close to shore jw turns around to talk about how great adam is and so the other cops can see basically the joke here is they know JW is a racist. And so they all see that the driver of the boat is black. And they exchange this glance of like, is that his brother-in-law that he's really excited and happy about? I don't think it is. And they they look really (laughs) confused. But JW is like, great, come on, let's keep going. So two highway patrol cars now to try and head them off at the pass. The boat chase is continuing.
1: While the, the boat chase is continuing, we get another great helicopter shot. Another great because we have seen big good helicopter shots in action sequences in pawn movies previously, but they're always I always like them. They always add a sense of like epic scale to these movies so they're like a big helicopter shot of the boat swerving through the bends in the river as they're chasing each other then they come around a bend and what's on the other side of the bend but a wedding bond hops his boat onto the shore and coasts right through the middle of this wedding into uh, back into the river on the other side one of the chase boats tries to do the same thing and coasts his boat right through the wedding cake and the food tent <laughs> the bride just goes oh and leans into her groom the highway patrol cars this. Point are stuck behind
0: a very slow moving, about to fall apart like oyster truck that eventually pulls over to allow them past. There is yet another jumping of an embankment as Bond's boat and Adam's boat fly up an embankment, skid across the road, and down the other side, causing the state police car to swing around and crash. And it causes a a huge pileup of the various police vehicles at the end of which the oyster truck pulls up and starts honking at them
1: i i appreciate with the car pile up sheriff pepper's car ends up upside down it's the only one that does Mm -hmm. and after having just been like lipping off this truck driver out the window he's like you ever think about getting a driver's license get that chicken coop off the road as the truck is approaching it's like laying on the horn at them it's still going like three kilometers an hour but it's like honk honk
0: i love it So good.
1: They end up, in a like the river widens and the two boats on the river end up in this area. There's like ships. Bond manages to get in ahead of Adam, ahead enough that he sort of loses the tail. Bond is nowhere to be found. Adam is sneaking around. We cut back to Bond and he's like pouring gasoline into a bucket as Adam is sort of skulking around these ships. Bond draws his attention by driving right in front of him, turns around. They pass each other heading in opposite directions and Bond tosses the gasoline in Adam's face on the way by, comes back around as adam is like clearing his eyes and hits the throttle on adam's boat causing it to go out of control because adam's got gas in his eyes and can't see so the boat starts spinning around and bond nudges it towards one of the ships that's docked on the side of the river it goes up this ramp on the front of the ship into the ship and explodes in a huge fireball and that basically brings our our boat chase to an end We cut to a scene of Bond bringing his boat into a dock in front of a sign that says, Keep boating fun. Three miles an hour, please.
0: So Bond pulls up to the dock and Felix is waiting there.
1: Along with like half the county's police officers. And then one of my
0: favorite exchanges in the whole thing is Sheriff Pepper's car pulls up, his door falls off, and he steps out of the car (laughs) and approaches Bond saying, What are you? Some kind of <laughs> doomsday machine, <laughs> and he starts trying to trying to cuff him. And Felix says to the head of the highway patrol, "Maybe you'd better enlighten enlighten your man." And the guy sort of pulls JW over, and very quietly is like, "Now listen here, this is a fella from England working with our boys, a sort of a." And he's being very quiet about this. He's like some sort of a <laughs> secret agent. And Sheriff Pepper just yells, "Secret agent!" on whose side (laughs) i just i love that the guy's trying to be really subtle about it and sheriff pepper just screams secret
1: agent (laughs) oh man it's good
0: sheriff pepper would become so popular with audiences of the day that they would actually bring the character back in the next movie i remember that felix tells bond that they've raided the fillet of soul and all they found was a couple burnt tarot cards they're gonna head back to Monique and try to disrupt Kananga's poppy growing operation
1: he says that Kananga's in the clear like he got away yeah. the guy that got on the boat with him <laughs> he says was nine feet tall and wearing a top hat
0: cut back to the villagers San Monique doing more of their voodoo ritual and then bond lighter and quarrel in a boat as they get ready to swim ashore quarrel has a series of timed explosives that are set to go off at midnight basically quarrel is going to be trying to blow up all the poppies while bond tries to save solitaire they go ashore quarrel stashes bond's wetsuit and shark gun while bond heads inland to try and find solitaire he sees more of the voodoo celebration lots of music and dancing solitaire gets brought out of one of the buildings and tied to the same post that we saw Banes being tied to earlier in the movie and then some people bring a coffin out then the man with the goat hat shows up and grabs the what did you say it was tree
1: boa yes a green tree boa I think I said
0: and starts dancing closer and closer to solitaire Bond pulls out his gun and is about to shoot the guy when everything falls completely
1: silent and people come out and and place it very sort of ceremonially place a top hat at the base of a grave and tap on the gravestone with the machete
0: and this is really strange <laughs> what happens is baron Samedi now rises out of the grave is resurrected if you will under the top hat so that he rises up to a standing position wearing this top hat bond with this enormous gun it's big shoots at baron Samedi. and there's this weird shot where a hole gets blown in baron Samedi's head and he's made of terracotta or clay like he's not it's a mannequin but his eyes are real and the eyes look up at their own head and the hole in the side of the head and Bond looks confused and then fires more shots and blows away the rest of this mannequin. I know that... This movie's dealing with a little bit of supernatural stuff, but that's like just completely science fiction at that point. Like to have this mannequin with human <laughs> eyes is very strange. So Bond is also confused, leaps in, grabs a machete, shoots a couple people, uses the machete to cut Solitaire's Bonds, and then the poppy fields start exploding. As Bond and Solitaire try to run away, another Baron Samdi rises out of a grave. All the people there are shocked and they cross themselves in a repeated shot from earlier. (laughs) The eagle-eyed among you might notice that there's a massive continuity error where they use the same shot of everyone crossing themselves a second time because in this time, the guy with the goat hat and the snake is still there, even though he's just been shot by Bond. (laughs) This Baron Samdi seems to be real, though. He smiles widely and laughs and grabs his own machete, and Bond chucks his gun away and goes to have a machete fight with Baron Samdi.
1: It's not much of a machete fight, though, because they both get, like, one swing in before Bond just punches Baron Samdi, and he spins around and trips over the edge of this casket full of snakes, falls into the casket full of snakes, and evidently is bitten dozens of times and falls dead in the casket.
0: When I mentioned that the cast were also afraid of snakes... Roger Moore is among them. Jeffrey Holder also petrified of snakes and really did not want to do that shot. But Princess Alexandra was on set that day and he didn't want to lose face in front of royalty. Huh well it's a good shot it is a good shot but apparently that's how that worked so bond and solitaire run up to a different one of the gravestones and bond having seen what happened before taps the gravestone three times with his machete and then we cut underneath to a control room where someone is like oh that's the signal and lowers the trap door in front of the gravestone i I guess that's how that works and then once he gets down there bond starts fighting all these technicians everyone is wearing jeans and a red shirt and sneakers and a big black belt it's quite striking their uniform they have a uniform yeah so they start running around this cave facility i love kananga's infrastructure it's very funny
1: yeah this cave facility is great bond and solitaire avoid the guards for a while and then find a door and they they run over to the door and they open the door they walk through the door and on the other side is this open cave with a pool of water in the bottom and an office to the side and and as soon as they walk into sight of it it's clear they've been made there are guards there pointing guns at them and kananga is waiting down beside the office looking up at the door and he just says oh mr bond i think he says so glad you could join us and uh, like why don't you come down here and and have a chat there's a brief cut back to
0: felix and quarrel wondering where bond is and quarrel just arriving back at the boat says well he can't be long because his wetsuit is gone and then we cut back to kananga saying lucky we found your wetsuit <laughs> which i which i love and he's like but what about this what's what's what is this amazing looking gun and he's like oh it's a shark gun it's full of compressed air pellets whisper who's sitting on a leather couch in the room sort of scoffs in a chuckly way kananga with a big smile on his face turns around and aims the gun at whisper and then lowers it and (laughs) shoots the compressed gas pellet into the couch which expands like a balloon until it explodes and Sort of dumps whisper on the ground.
1: Oh, it's such a it's such a good bit. The coach blowing up is awesome, and Kananga is very enamored of the the gun. He's like, "Oh, this is genius!" And he starts playing with one of the canisters. And Bond is like, "Mmm, careful. The air in here is foul enough already." To which Kananga responds, "I didn't
0: think you'd be such a sore loser, Mister Bond. What a shame!" And then he shows off the rest of his operation, and he's like, "We make the heroin. You know, this is how we get the poppies out of here. We put them in this." submersible thing. We use this winch. Actually, here, tie them to the winch. And so that they both get tied to the winch and they're going to get lowered into a pool full of sharks. Uh-huh. Well, that's actually not clear right away because Kananga comes over and very precisely slices Bond's arm a couple times.
1: So I have a thing about knife slicing. Mm-hmm. This is a thing that makes me squeamish in any movie. Like, it doesn't matter what it is, but I just do. I the thought of a blade across someone's skin makes me very squeamish. So two things about this scene, just in terms of my relationship relationship to the Bond franchise ever since I first saw this movie when I was little this scene has made me cringe inside out even though it's like really obviously the knife just has paint on it he's just like drawing three lines on Bond's Mm -hmm. arm the other thing is I always think this scene is in Thunderball oh Right, because of the sharks. Sharks and, like, diving, like, underwater equipment. I always, always, always think the scene is in Thunderball until I watch Thunderball and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's not in Thunderball. What movie's that in? Until I see it in this movie and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's in this movie. But anyhow, Kananga cuts the lines into Bond's arm. And Bond quips, because it's taking a while and it's not going to kill
0: him very quickly, Bond quips, why don't we try something in an even simpler vein? And Kananga says, on the contrary, Mr. Bond, I think you'll find... These wounds quite fatal. Then indicating that there are sharks in the water,
1: he gets Whisper to winch them up over the pool and begin lowering them in. Bond uses the magnet on his watch to draw the gas canister to him.
0: Oh, he does. He does actually use the magnet for something. You're right.
1: He does. Yeah, he pulls the the gas canister towards him as they're beginning to lower them into the water. Kananga reminds Whisper that he forgot to open the gate to let the sharks into the pool. Bond uses the watch which has another previously undisclosed gadget, which is that the compass ring on the surface, like on the edge of the watch, is actually a buzzsaw. And so that starts spinning and he uses that to cut the rope that's got him restrained. He unties himself. He then unties Solitaire.
0: Whisper's the only one that notices Bond is swinging down to get back to dry land and yells, but of course Kananga can't hear him. And Bond kicks Whisper into one of the open transport canisters and locks him closed. And then Kananga comes. comes a bond with a knife. They both go flying into the water. There's sharks all around. They're fighting. Kananga starts gesturing wildly that there's sharks coming towards them. Bond puts the gas canister into Kananga's mouth in a way that it opens. And in the only like actually stupid part of the movie, the gas canister doesn't like fire out or just leak out of Kananga's mouth. It inflates him like a balloon and he fires out of the water up to the ceiling where he impacts with the ceiling and explodes into tiny pieces it's stupid
1: but i kind of
0: love it me too again when i say something in a bond movie is like is stupid i generally am not actually criticizing it
1: it is yet another in the the long and noble tradition of bond villains getting really gruesome endings Mm -hmm. this one is maybe the grimmest that we've had so far because yeah he fully just explodes over the whole room it's completely goreless but it's, it's
0: quite the explosion yeah you'd think everything in the room would be caked in pink mist but that doesn't happen it's just boom gone and then bond indicates kananga has a monorail kananga has a little monorail like and you only live twice i was actually not sure if it was the same monorail so i looked it up it's not so bond indicates that that's how they're going to escape and then we cut to them saying goodbye to felix as
1: they board a train and felix is is like I don't know why you chose this mode of travel. What can you do for 16 hours on a train? (laughs) Bond says to Solitaire, say goodbye to
0: Felix. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) you complete fool.
1: And then it cuts to them inside the train playing gin rummy.
0: Now, let's do a quick sort of headcount here of named henchmen. Adam got blown up in a boat on the bayou. Baron Samdi fell into a coffin full of snakes. Whisper Mm -hmm. got trapped in a transport thing we presume dead. But what about Teehee? That's a good question. Well, in the mail car of the train, we see the camera pan down to a bag of mail and a hook fires out of the canvas and slices down the length of it. And then back in Bond and Solitaire's room, Solitaire is making come to bed noises. And also she's talking about how she actually is really happy with how everything is gone. You know, she's like, it's, Mm-hmm. Great to be able to be making my own decisions to be in charge of my own life. We see a close-up shot of Tee he cutting the breakers for the room, which Solitaire interprets as Bond having romantically turned the lights off, and she's like, Oh, this is so wonderful. And she reaches her hand out without looking. She reaches her hand down from the bunk and is like, just the touch of your hand would be so wonderful. And Tee he's claw starts reaching towards her hand as Bond <laughs> notices that T. He is there. T. flips the bunk up. <laughs> yeeting solitaire into the wall and then Bond and Teehee have a shorter train fight than the one from From Russia with Love but no less violent
1: yeah still pretty good lots of destruction inflicted on this train car it's a much roomier train car than the previous one gives them a little more room to maneuver but there's some great action in this I, I think the one of the more iconic bits is Bond using the bed ladder to hold Teehee up against a wall as Teehee like uses his mechanical arm to just like bust it down yeah. the scene ultimately makes his way to a window t sort of like busts through the window manages to pin bond down bond manages to tear away the shoulder of t suit as they go to the other window in the room t manages to pin bond against the the window railing or the handle on the window and starts to choke him to death and, and suffocate him bond sees that he's got a little suitcase with some of his personal grooming tools in it and he manages to reach over and grab a pair of clippers which he uses to cut the wires in Teehee's arm which causes the arm hook to latch around the handle on the window immobilizing Teehee against the window and so Bond steps away catches his breath hears Solitaire (laughs) trapped inside the bed looks up and down Teehee then comes up behind him lifts him up and hefts him out the window of this still moving train. Teehee launched from the train car, leaves his arm still attached to the, the window. Bond rescues Solitaire, then goes over to release the arm and throw it out the window and then turns back around to have sex with Solitaire. And so ends the movie. And then
0: we cut to a shot of the front of the train where Baron Samdi in his full voodoo costume is sitting on the cowcatcher at the front of the train, tipping his hat to the audience and laughing maniacally
1: when it cuts to the end credits it cuts to the skull and this skull is almost perfectly aligned with baron Sandy's face
0: baron samdy would not appear in any other movie but this is kind of a fun like or is he end to the movie i just like the idea that baron Samdi actually just can't die yeah and it's just he's the god of the resurrection and the leader of the gods of the dead yeah what's the problem he's he's baron samdy all right so What'd you think? Man, this movie's so much fun. It's great. Like, it's really well-constructed and well-paced and everybody in it is great. And... I really like it.
1: I I think on the whole, the ups outweigh the downs on this one by a long shot. It is you were you're correct when you said it earlier. It's super well paced. Everybody's on their top form. I think the introduction of Roger Moore as Bond is firing on all cylinders. I think the story, the story works in all the ways it all the ways it needs to work. It's a good, fun movie. I also like this film.
0: I don't know how I'm going to rank anything. (laughs) today (laughs) like okay pre-title is probably the easiest it's great in service to the overall movie as a standalone thing it is not like there's no marquee stunts or anything bond himself isn't in it it is important and part of the good pacing of the movie as a whole but on its own it is not spectacular
1: i i have a pretty good idea where i'm going to put this because you're looking at the same spreadsheet i am i i think this is my number three behind from russia with love and you only live twice but ahead of goldfinger it's a tough call this could easily tie with goldfinger the reason this wins out over goldfinger for me goldfinger has the stupid seagull hat <laughs> which i dearly love <laughs> see now i'm selling myself on goldfinger the like villainous base inside the tank the the attacker in the reflection of the woman's eye This one has the sweet funeral procession, which is just like the two other deaths are neither here nor there, really. But I think the death in New Orleans, it stands out to me among all Bond films, the funeral procession walking along and then they kill the guy and they pick him up and everybody dances and is happy. It does a better job of setting up the movie than Goldfinger does. And it's got like one of the like super iconic sequences from an opening scene that puts it above the seagull hat i love so much
0: yeah i agree with you actually i think that that's probably where this one goes as well like it doesn't actually have any of sort of the marquee pre-title bond things but it is really well put together and it really hooks you yeah opening title song i gotta say this song's an absolute say it this song absolutely <laughs> rules this is this is by your <laughs> by your bbb ranking this is an absolute banger or what is it belter banger
1: banger this one was yeah. a banger and i got this this is number one this is my number one this is your number one I don't know that I'm as decisive about that. Live and let die is a really good song. I think I actually like Honor Majesty's Secret Service better in terms of sheer iconography. I think Goldfinger is more iconic. Goldfinger lives to see another right. day at the top of my list. I'm I'm putting it I'm putting it above OHMSS, but I'm putting it below Goldfinger because Goldfinger has the the combo of song and visuals right. in a way that this one doesn't. That's that's my totally arbitrary deciding factor today.
0: All right. In terms of the movie as a whole on my personal power rankings, this is where my opinions are going to be more obvious sort of going forward, right? Because it's like, right. The Moore era is what drew me into James Bond. Campy, fun action romps. This is what made me really like James Bond. And I can look at something like From Russia With Love and go, damn, that's a great spy movie, but Live and Let Die is the sort of one that I want to keep going back to rewatch. OHMSS startled me greatly by how good it was in retrospect, which is why it's number one for me right now, ahead of From Russia With Love. And I'm trying to figure out where Live and Let Die goes. The thing is, I, I like all of them, but for me, for what I really want out of a Bond movie, this really has it like all of it. And I'm really really trying to figure out if this is second to OHMSS or if this is just <laughs> number 1 for me because this is my list and I can do what I want.
1: You are in control of your own list. Only 10 000 to 20,000 people on the internet will judge it. And me. Well, yeah.
0: I think I think this is my favorite. It's going to be a while before this has a real contender to unseat it. Like, I know that Goldeneye and Casino Royale are both ones that I also really, really like and really deliver on the promise of what a Bond movie should be, albeit from different eras.
1: But this thing really lands for me. All right. Very good. I know where it sits for me. Not even a contest. And that is in my number three slot. Behind From Russia With Love and OHMSS. Ahead of Dr. No. So far, my top three are one each from each of the Bonds we've seen.
0: So are mine, just in a different order.
1: No, I guess that's (laughs) true.
0: (laughs) Plenty more Roger Moore movies to thoroughly disrupt our power rankings to come. But that (laughs) exhaustive review is going to do it for (laughs) Live and Let Die. There was a lot to go over and thank you for joining us for it. But that is going to do it for this episode of From Rewatch with Love. Thank you always, Matt, for doing this with me. Always. Shout out to Matt Griffiths for doing the video editing on these and Heather for doing podcast admin. Thank you all of you for listening and for supporting us at patreon.com slash run for letting us bring you all of the entertainment that we do this show and everything else. And until next time, this podcast will return. <music>